Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. What a week we have in store for you. We are six days out from the 2023 Boston Marathon. Everyone here at Let's Run.com is very excited about it. We're going to have boots on the ground. The co-founders, Robin Weldon and myself, Jonathan Gold, all of us will be in Boston this weekend. It's going to be fantastic. We give you an early breakdown of the races before our main preview on the Supporters Club Friday 15, which we will record later this week in Boston on Friday. Elsewhere, Shakari Richardson is back. Mo Farah bombs. Crazy times at the Arcadia Invitational. And Chase World Champion Nora Gerudo is hot for athlete biological passport violations. Plus, at the end of the show, we are joined by ultra-running legend Camille Heron after she ran a world record of 270 miles during a 48-hour period in Australia last month. This is Jonathan Gold. I'm joined by Robin and Weldon Johnson, co-hosts of Let's Run, co-hosts of the podcast, co-founders of Let's Run.com. Guys, I'm pumped. Boston Marathon 2023. Marathon fever is here. It's su- the sun is shining outside. The course is getting repainted. The running world will be descending on my fair city within a couple of days. I can't wait for it. Are you guys ex- excited? I don't think I've ever been this excited, John. But it's not for Boston. I mean, I am excited for Boston. Don't misunderstand me. Hell, it's rare that the, th- the brain trust of Let's Run... And also our programmer lives in, in, in Boston as well. The four of us can be all in one city. But my excitement is really to something you guys don't even know about. I've made a lot of bold proclamations over the years. The children's book that I was going to write with parenting advice hasn't been published yet. It's going to coach all these pros to Olympic gold medals. It hasn't happened yet, but this may be even better. Remember, like, I think it was last year, Weldon was telling the story when the On Athletics Club was just a tiny club and no one had heard of On. And he was at some gathering in New York and Jordan Donnelly, who listens to the podcast of On, the shoe designer, was on and Weldon was talking to Craig Mosbach of Nike and Jordan was there. And when they finished, Jordan said, Craig, we're coming for you. We're coming for you. Well, I just... Any shoe execs that are out there right now, mark this down, April 11th, 2023. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. I've always dreamed of having my own shoe, the Let's Run shoe, the Rojo. And last week, someone signed up for the Supporters Club. I've met this young person. I was going to say young lady, but I don't want to be. There aren't that many women operating in the shoe industry. She might be doxxed if I said that. Although now I've pretty much made it clear that she is a woman. Anyway, she's a shoe designer. She signed up for the Supporters Club. And when I sent her her t-shirt, I said, looking forward to designing our shoe together. Let me know when you want to get started. So new Supporters Club member, if you're listening, I'm serious. We'll have them trembling soon. Okay, well done. On the list of Robert's harebrained ideas from 958.com, his sprint website that he says he's going to start but never starts to breaking three hours in the marathon, which he's claimed he will do, but he hasn't started running again. Where do you put the odds of 
us actually getting to see a Rojo-inspired, designed running shoe. I mean, this is the first I've heard of it. I say to people, it's a good thing we do the podcast because I found out what's going on with Robert and his family. My wife will ask, and I'm like, well, unless it came out on a podcast, I don't really know. But John, he looks different. He's got a new house now, a new background. His shirt looks a little more professional. He's got a colored shirt. There must be an explanation for this. There ha- like, there's no way Robert just decided to wear that randomly today. I mean, I think this one this one may happen. And Nate and the Rojo, I, I laughed at first, but why not? This could happen, John. Don't you think it would be cooler, though, if we call it the Rojo? Like, it's this bright red shoe it sounds a little exotic sounds a little sexy i feel like that would catch on more than calling it the rojo speaking of exotic and sexy i think we have a we're having a let's run.com meetup on friday put a link in the show notes to confirm but we have a location robert do we have a time well the expo ends at six so i suggest 6 30 is the time okay we'll be at, at dylan's um, what street, John? I think it's Boylston. Let me double check that. 955 Boylston Street. It's like, I didn't realize how centrally located everything is in Boston. John, is the expo always right near the Fairmont Copley where all the media stuff is? I swear. Uh, one I think year- one year they had it in South Boston, but usually it's in the convention center, which is right near. Copley Square and near the finish line. So, yeah, I th- we haven't got any sort of reservation. So we're hoping Dylan's is pretty s- spacey. We're hoping it'll be a good enough spot to ha- house the legions of fans that will surely be showing up for this momentous occasion. But if not, we can call an audible. Uh, I think that's going to be a good option. Six thirty, Dylan's. Right, and supporters club members. This is a supporters club gathering, but it's open to all. All Let's Run dot com fans. Supporters Club members, though, your annual beer is on us. So, and but John, I don't know if you can make it. Being the number one running person in Boston, I'm sure you have a lot of commitments and stuff. I mean, you and Bill Rogers probably are neck and neck. A lot of people probably don't remember Bill, but if you can't make it, we'll understand. I'm I'm surprised you weren't painting the lines today at the course and doing a lot of stuff like that as well. Surprisingly, haven't gotten any invites for those sort of things. Well, then, but. Who knows? We still got six days until the race. And I guess New Balance didn't none of the execs listen to our podcast and decided to have an event at the track like I said they should every year. I guess that's not happening. Have they run out of questionable records to chase? Because I know the DMR, they kind of made it a legit record last year with how fast they ran. That one's probably not on the table. Ellie St. Pierre is pregnant as well, so she can't even run it for them. I don't know what the 4 by 8 record is. Maybe it's tougher. I mean, maybe that was the issue. Maybe we needed to come up with some easy record for them to chase. Wait a minute. Ellie St. Pierre is pregnant again? I'm sorry. She just gave birth, but I don't think she's ready to race uh, and set a world record right now. I also don't think she's ready to get pregnant again. So, Robert, I... I've already asked you a few weeks ago. We don't make those sort of decisions. That is not your body, not your life. So just back off. That's my advice. That's the problem with New Balance, right? They don't really sponsor that many men. So 
if your main star gets pregnant and is out of commission, they don't have enough people to fill the spots. That's why they should sponsor a few men in the United States, maybe. Anyway, we, we're not New Balance haters. For the record, we all love the track. We just want that to be an excuse to go back there. I had a great time last year. I thought it was a fantastic event. We're just, you know, we were hoping it would be an annual thing. No, I love New Balance. They did great things. They built that $100 million facility. Have an event there every Boston Marathon. Get the community involved at your place. It's called guerrilla marketing. I guess I don't need to tell New Balance how to market since... They keep killing it as a private company. But like this is no-brainer. All right, so should we start with Boston? I'd like to start with some sprint action, John. Then maybe go to Arcadia, and then go to Boston. But before we get into this first topic, do maybe I should ask Weldon. He's the corporate guy, the money guy. Do we have permission to talk about Shakari Richardson's? Remember last week, last year? When she ran in some meet, she demanded, or she went to Twitter complaining that she wasn't being paid, that the meet was promoting that she was at the meet. So is it okay, guys, do you think, if we talk about Shakira without actually paying her? I think it's all right, but if Weldon puts a picture of Shakari Richardson in the logo for the episode, maybe we get in trouble. So I'm willing to take that risk. I think she earned it. And there was a great meet last weekend, <clears throat> sprint meet, the Miravar Invitational and. In I think Miramar, Florida, wasn't much advance notice about it. Because maybe because Shakari didn't want USATF was afraid to piss them off, but they had Paul Swangard out of Bolton commentating. It was streamed somewhere. I didn't watch it live. It was but streamed the, live on USATF.tv, which is great for the sport. Unfortunately, this meet was barely promoted, and then the first couple races didn't feature a clock. There were last-minute scratches that the commentators weren't aware of. I'm not blaming Paul Swangard or Otto Bolden. They're total pros. I think the problem was this meet wasn't managed very well because you had all this star power, and like Christian Coleman, Lesil Tobogo, Shakari Richardson. But then you also had Stephen Gardner signed up. He scratches. Matt Hudson-Smith, he was in the 400. He scratches. I don't know. I just think our sport it is great to have a high-quality meet for free available to everyone. And it was a bit of a missed opportunity in terms of not promoting it and not presenting it quite as well as it could have been. And yet the CEO gets $3 million a year. I was able to figure out how to put a clock on a broadcast with one week's notice, and I'm not even a broadcast guy. Anyways, the result that we'll remember from this meet, or the turned heads from this meet, was Shakari Richardson, the former high school star who won NCAs at LSU as a true freshman. What did she run at LSU, John? 10.75. That was in 2019. Managed to not make the U.S. team at Worlds that year. Then she storms back in 2021, wins the Olympic trials, and manages not to go to the Olympics because she had marijuana in her system. Since then, she hasn't really run very fast. She's managed to get kicked off of a plane, have a much publicized lover's quarrel. Anyways, she carries clearly one of the greatest sprint talents the world has ever seen, certainly the U.S. has ever seen. And one of my favorite phrases is, is talent doesn't go away. And that was proven this weekend because she opened up her individual 2023 season with two eye perform two eye opening performances, 
Prelim, she runs 1075 with a positive 2.8 wind. Using Jonas Mareka's conversion, that's a 10.90. And then in the final, she runs 10.57. Now, there was a 4.1 wind, but 10.57 is the fourth fastest women's 100 ever recorded under any conditions, and it converts to a 10.77 in still conditions. Super impressive. John, you were watching this live, right? Like, how shocked were you? I wasn't that shocked after the prelims. The 10.75 surprised me a little bit, but we also have always known Shakari has this level of talent. She's still only 23 years old. She's in the middle of what you would think would be her sprinting prime. So after she went 10.75 in the prelims, and then after Ado Bolden said that was the best start he's ever seen her get in her life, he was very impressed. He feels like she's improved her start and that should make her more competitive as the season goes on. Then 10 5 7, I mean, she won by a ton. She totally dusted some of the best sprinters in the United States. TT Terry, who made the world's team last year, she was second back in 1083. Now, Melissa Jefferson, the reigning US champion, was also in this race. She got dead last in 1127. So, not a great race for her. But the women she was going up against, she was going up against some of the best in the US. She absolutely crushed them. Crushed them. She threw up her arms celebrating couple steps before the line as well so maybe she could have run a hundredth or two faster but it's pretty similar to what we saw her do at this meet two years ago if you remember then she set her official pb 10.72 when legal at this same meet she winds up winds up going 1064 windy at the olympic trials she wins the olympic trials in commanding fashion and then she gets dq because of the marijuana but it's very similar to what she did two years ago. I think it's exciting if you're a Shikari fan, for sure. This is a great performance. But we've also got to remember the big question with Shikari is can she keep it together and get it done when it matters? Because last year, she was in pretty good form going into USA's. Not her 2021 form, but she ran 10.85 in her last meet before USA's. And then totally chokes, doesn't even make it out of the first round. So there is a long way between now and the world championship final in August, which Weldon Johnson on this show has predicted she will win. But it's a good sign that she's in shape and running well. It seems like she didn't totally sort of bail on the offseason like she did last year. Remember, it took her a long time to open up individually. And now she's set to go to Botswana at the end of this month and race again. So very good opener. Long way to USA's and Welds. Yeah, Weldon's got to be feeling pretty good about that prediction. But the way I viewed it, and I may or may not publish this in the week that was. I've got it like half written. But, John, you were saying, you know, she was in pretty good form. But she was never in this form last year. Her offseason was a disaster. There was some personal drama in her personal life with relationship troubles and whatnot. And then when she did open, she didn't open her season for almost another month. I think it was, it was actually later. Wasn't it May? May 21st was her first race in 2022. And there she ran 1137 and 1127 into the wind. The weather was terrible. That was 1125 still condition. So here she's almost a full half second better than that. Now a week later than that. So last year, end of May, 
she ran 10.92 at pre with a tailwind, which is equivalent to a 10.96. And that was basically the best form she was in all year. The week, her last race before USA's Randall's Island was a little bit better. She ran 10.85, which you mentioned, but that was a 1.3 win. So that's a 10.93, still conditions. She's now 0.16 ahead of that in her opener. So that's pretty good. Nobody has ever run under 10.80 at a global championship and not meddled. Um, now, at the 2021 Olympics, 10.76 was third. So it's possible, you know, I think basically if she can just maintain this fitness, she's almost guaranteed to medal at Worlds as possible. She could run this and finish like fourth. I'd, I wouldn't say that. Even if she maintains this fitness, you've got arguably the two greatest 100-meter sprinters of all time, Shelly and Fraser Price and Elaine Thompson, hurrah. And you've got Sharika Jackson. If those three all show up in their A games, they could still all beat Shakari, even if Shakari is at her best. But she is certainly the biggest threat to break them up if she comes in in peak form. They could do it, but the odds of all three of them being on their game, they're getting older, isn't perfect. All I'm stating is no human being has ever run under 10.80 when legal finished fourth in a race. There's been two races where people have run under 10.80 and finished third. So it's certainly possible it could happen. History history is always being made. Times are getting faster. Um, you have that Olympic race and then a Monaco Diamond League, I think, actually last year. Marie Ho- uh, Jose Tello ran 10.72 for fourth in Monaco, which is crazy. Who would have been the three ahead of her in that one? I'm guessing Fraser Price, Thompson, Harar, and Tariqa Jackson. I guess maybe I should walk back me saying she would, sorry, Shikari would certainly be the biggest threat. I mean, I think talent-wise, yeah, she's the most talented sprinter outside the Jamaicans, but she hasn't even made a world championship to her Olympics yet. So until she actually gets there, maybe should pump the brakes on that. I need to correct what I said. Monaco, Shelly Ann Fraser Price last year, 1062, Sherika Jackson, 1072, Marie Jose Tello, third, 1072. But, John, can we stop with this, oh, she's never made a team bullshit? She made a team in 2021. She she performed when it mattered at the Olympic trials. It was DQ'd for smoking weed before the race. Like, she those befo- to me are unrelated mattered, things. Mattered, but her off-the-track issues bled onto the track and prevented her from reaching her goal. So, I think I will... I agree with you, like, that is her best performance in an important race, and it was a very important race, but these questions about is she going to derail her season, I don't think she's totally solved those well then, because her last two USAs, she totally bombed in the first round without explanation, and she cost herself a spot on the team with her own bad decision. So that's something she has to overcome, to make it to the next stage and actually get to a world championships. And if I'm being, you know, transparent, 2019, she did win NCAs and finished eighth at USAs. So she bombed there as well. I give her a pass on USAs in 2019, though, because she ran well at what she thought was going to be her biggest race of the season, NCAAs. That was her best race of the year. She was 19 years old. USAs were in the end of July. It was a super long season. So... For a kid in your first year of college to try to peak for June and then to hold it till the end of July, 
I don't blame her for not running well as a 19-year-old in that race. I'm giving her a pass on that. And being the leader of the Shakari fan club, on the record saying she'd win the world championships, she gave me permission to talk about her. This performance didn't surprise me at all. The 10-5, of course that's surprising. But then you do the wind and do a little math. I'm a little bit surprised, right? Like it's it's maybe like 0.1 faster than I might thought she would have run or something. Like it, but it's not like out of the realm. I already know Shakari Richardson is a 10-7 sprinter. I don't know if she can become. I think she can. I said she could win the world championships, but the question is: Is she going to be a 10-5 or 10-6 low sprinter in July and August? That's all that matters. She can just go out there and do this. I mean, last year we heard Justin Gatlin saying, like, he thinks she can break the world record. He'd see her every day in training. And I thought she was going to do it last year from the way he was talking on those broadcasts. So it's good to have her in the mix, man. The sport's way more interesting when she's running well because you need her at the meets. I mean, even last year when she didn't run that well, it was interesting. It was a story, but... It's like Alan Webb back in the day. When you don't know which version is going to show up, it's even more interesting. I just enjoy that we're talking about her actual performance, uh, that we're able, hey, we have a race to break down. And obviously, like when we talk about performance, well, you got to factor the off the track ends, off the track stuff in a little bit because it can have an effect on her performance. But it's good that she's out there racing. And I do wonder, I think Race Take has popularized this query on Twitter is. If you're running the equivalent of a 10.77 on April 8th, are you going to be able to still be in that kind of shape four months later? I think that's also a legitimate question. Uh, but in 2021, she ran basically this fast this time of the season and was in really good shape when she needed to be at the Olympic trials, which were only a few weeks out from the Olympics. So that year it didn't seem to be an issue running really fast really early it's just exciting because well Walton says he's not surprised i'm not surprised either but we didn't know that she was ever gonna do this we thought she was talent doesn't go away but xavier carter was extremely talented now i know he had some knee injuries the younger people this is a guy that won the 100 and 400 at ncas the same ncas right john mm-hmm. where did he go so it's just it's exciting, and if she does say it, the the amount of money she's if she end up being a global star, win an Olympic title, she's going to be like Brittany Reese in terms of crossover appeal, maybe bigger. Do you mean Angel Reese? Excuse me, Angel Reese. Yes, those international viewers. That's a NCAA collegiate basketball star in America. Wait, does Angel Reese the most popular basketball player? No. Yeah, I feel like Caitlin Clark is more popular collegiately, no? Angel Reese is getting talked about by Joe Jill Biden and Sports Center. This is what I'm talking about. How many other athletes get talked about by those types of people? Female well, Caitlin Clark. Caitlin okay, Clark does. So. And she's getting talked about because of some I, of her antics. I I, I, I didn't say that they wouldn't also be talking about Sidney McLaughlin. I didn't say that Shakira would be the only person they're talking about. I said she would be one of the people they're talking about. And yes, the reason why I brought up Angel Reese is because some of her 
actions are viewed negatively by some. Well, no, I would say the similarities are they're both outspoken, unfiltered, they're both extremely talented, they're both national champions, they both went to LSU. I certainly see the similarities. All right, guys, a couple of other results to talk about from this meet, the Miramar Invitational. One was Ajay Wilson in the 800. She won it comfortably in 202.95. I was more interested by the men's 800, and not by the winner, Ryan Sanchez, but by TJ Holmes, who is a 400-meter hurdler who made his 800-meter debut in this race. And it looked like it was a painful one for Mr. Holmes. His splits... 52 seconds for the first lap, 72 seconds for the second lap. 2.04, finishing time. I mean, sometimes sometimes you throw yourself out there, you give yourself a shot, and just miscalculated. He wound up running, finishing dead last. He was slower than RJ Wilson. I respect him for giving it a go, but man, that's got to be a painful 72 seconds on the way home. His debut, John. Assuming that's it for him. But I hope it's not. We should have had TJ in the podcast. We could have had Camille Heron for long distance, TJ for the short of Let's Run. Like, I don't know. This guy running like a 600 in practice? Like, I'm just shocked that he would die that badly. He he has one 600 on his, resu- on his results page, 117 in 2020. That's pretty good. And TJ, I mean, he was fifth at the 2017 and 2019 World Championships in the 400 hurdlers. He was a very good 400 hurdler. He's not, he, I don't know, maybe he could be a good 800 meter runner if he wants to pace himself correctly, but he didn't for this race. So I found those splits interesting. And then the 200s, a couple of good races here. Christian Coleman edges Letzil Tobogo, the world under 20 champion in the 100 meters from Botswana, by 3,000 three thousandths of a second. Both of them ran 20.00. Kenny Benarek, who was the Olympic and world silver medalist in the 200, was only third in 2037. I was surprised by that result because you would think he's clearly the best 200-meter runner of those guys. He wasn't particularly close. I'm wondering, maybe he's just not up to speed right now. In the women's race, Abby Steiner, the U.S. champ, won in 22-23. It's a bummer for me. I was still holding out hope. I was the only one of the three that thought Tobogo might still go to Oregon like he said he was. Y'all said a month or two ago, this semester's already started. I said, I don't know. I think Oregon might be like, have a late semester that starts, but looks like the world junior champ is just going to stick to the professional circuit. I wonder where he's training now. Sounds like he might, I'm assuming he's based in the U.S. now if he's racing over here on April 11th. I am curious. He was wearing like the orange Nike kit. So he had a Nike Pro kit. I assume he has a Nike Pro contract and will not be able to run in the NCAA, Robert. But it's those. it was the same kit that they give out to the Roser athletes. But I've also seen sometimes it doesn't always apply because Marie-Jose Talou would wear it sometimes. I don't really know what the rules are for getting a Nike Oregon jersey. Sorry, a an orange Nike jersey, but he had one. So make of that what you will. There's one other sprint result I wanted to talk about, and it was on the, held on the other side of the country in Los Angeles. Rye Benjamin, the, I guess, Olympic and World Championship silver medalist, John, is that right? No, he yep. won World Championship silver last year. In the 400 hurdles, ran a PB in the open 400, 
21 PR by 0.10, which is interesting. And, and you know, one of the better events in, in track and field the last few years has been the four hurdles, both men's and women's side. And Sieg Lindstrom of Track and Field News has a, a feature on him. And it was kind of interesting because remember last year when when he lost worlds got or lost, that's you know, that's how we always phrase it when you get the silver medal. He was so ecstatic. He was really happy. And this sort of elaborates why. Like he had this serious injury all season, basically. His sounds like his hamstring was almost pulled off, and he was able to get through it and just didn't know if he qualified at USA's, didn't know if he was going to be able to run worlds. And he medaled, and now he's healthy. So this is just a fascinating event because we had Warholm on top in, I mean, running times we've never seen before. World record in the Olympics. Then he gets dinged up a bit last year. We've got Dos Santos running incredibly fast. Now Dos Santos is, is, is dinged up. And could Benjamin have it? Could we have three different people win in three different years and that would just set up an, a massive 2024 Paris Olympics. I, I somehow had missed this. Dos Santos, the Brazilian, apparently is going to most likely be out for the season. Uh, John, I guess you probably knew about that. It happened in February, meniscus tear in his, in his knee. Yeah, it was reported in Brazilian media, and because I don't speak Portuguese, it wasn't totally clear how serious the injury was going to be, but the I think... If we do see Dos Santos, it's probably going to be a Warholm situation where he's just coming into Worlds and trying to give it a go and isn't sure where we're at. But he might not risk it at all. Yeah, it's, it remains a fascinating event because Benjamin, I was wondering, you know, is he going to be able to come off this hamstring injury okay? Well, he's running the fastest 400 of his life in April. It seems like he's healed up just fine. Warholm is still around. He's obviously going to want to regain that world title. But I, I think the most exciting storyline, Robert, would be, like you said, if Benjamin wins Worlds and then you go to Tokyo and you have the three gold medalists all squaring... Sorry, not Tokyo, Paris. You go to Paris and you have the three gold medalists all squaring off in the final. So that was an exciting race for Rye Benjamin. He looked so smooth in that race as well. Like I feel like that guy put him fully... If you just trained him for the 400, there's a sub-44 guy right there. Um, like he could, I wouldn't be shocked if this guy won a world title in the 400 flat if he ever trained for it, but he has told me he really never really wants to run the 400. If he's going to move to the sprints, it's going to be the flat sprints. It will be the 200, which he might actually do later in his career. One other interesting thing about this article, since he's working on a new hurdle technique, it wants to go 13 steps for the first two hurdles, then 12 steps for number three and four, and then back to 13. I assume he's not the first person to do this. Normally people go shorter at the beginning and then just longer because they're tired. But I guess he's, this is kind of, I mean, I'm not a hurdle expert. I used to love to kind of talk to the hurdle guys and try to act like I understood it. But it makes sense needing more hurdles at the beginning because you're not quite going as fast. So your first couple strides aren't going to be as long because you're coming out of the crouch. And then, but he's only trying to get two in on the 12 step and then 13. The rest. I, w- I wonder what he was doing before. If you know what he was doing before, email us, Robert at Let's Run, Robert at Let's Run, or pick up the phone and call us. If you're new to the show, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, we actually answer the phone. 844 Let's Run, 844 538 7786. 
You can even Robert. leave a voicemail. If we play your voicemail, we'll send you a free shirt. One other notable result from this race. Did you see who finished second in the Rye Benjamin 400 meters at USC? Isaiah Jewett, 2021 Olympian in the men's 800 meters, 45.90, personal best. I feel like we didn't really mention Jewett all that much when we were picking the Olympic team for 2024. We did that on the Supporters Club podcast a few weeks ago. Let's run.com slash subscribe if you want to hear our full discussion. That's a great sign for him. If you're running a personal best in the 400 and you're a speed-based 800 guy like Isaiah Jewett, very promising. He's certainly going to be in the mix this year again for a spot on Team USA. When you asked me who was in the 400, I couldn't quite think of who. I almost yelled out, was it Michael Johnson? Because he was in the news last week, the former star of the 1996 Olympics, former American record holder, and the two in the four. Does he still have the four? Yes. He had some ideas on Twitter about how to make the sport more popular. If you guys saw this, but he compared track to a restaurant. It's a pretty interesting tweet. Track is a restaurant. It serves Italian, barbecue, vegan, Chinese, and Mexican. It's called Table and Chairs. The restaurant has 50 customers, mostly the owners and their family. Between them, they love barbecue, vegan, Chinese, and Mexican foods, but they seldom get new customers. What should they do? Well, his implication there is obviously you should be cutting down and focusing on one thing. Now, track. I don't think he wants the entire sport to just become the 100 meters. But one of his other, you know, he he has these threads from time to time. And he had this long tweet talking about cutting down events. He just said that his idea, 10 to 12 competitions annually, po- possibly four majors like tennis. We've bandied around that idea on our podcast before. And they said events, 100, 200, 400, 800, 1500, 5K, high hurdles, 400 hurdles, 4 by one 4 by 4 only events that can be televised from start to finish without interruption. So he said field events included only if they could be reimagined in a fast action format, taking no more than 15 minutes. He said track fans love the variety show of sprinters, runners, jumpers, throwers, and vaulters, but trends suggest most people do not enjoy the variety, and it makes the sport extremely difficult to televise, market, and promote. I'm, I mean, it's, it would be a shame to get rid of all the field events, but I do think... His larger point that track has more events, I, I think, is fairly valid. Like, do we need the 100, 200, and 400? No, I think just the 100 and 400 is fine. If you really, like, want to popularize the sport, I guess I'm I'm not suggesting we need to cut the 200 meters. I mean, I like the 200 meters. But if you're really looking for big changes, what does that accomplish? Well, instead of athletes being able to dodge each other, one runs the 100 or one runs the 200, they don't really have that option. If you're a short sprinter, you got to run the 100 now at track meets. Same thing, 815, you get rid of the 8. Everyone goes up to the 15. I think he's kind of got a point here with like getting rid of the 10K. They're all going into the 5K. Also, the 5K gets done quicker. You, know, you don't need to worry about finding a 30-minute block to televise a race. So I think that he raises some interesting issues, but this is going to take the stakeholders all coming together, you know, Diamond League meet directors, 
the world world athletics actually making these changes and i'm not sure if there's anyone up there who will his proposal was essentially just yeah cut field events tighten the schedule probably needs to be tightened more than that our our sport is a circus but a lot of people go to the circus actually but it's a separate issue but are we gonna have a party step up invest a bunch of money to to scrap all the invested interest this isn't gonna happen we have a diamond league it's in two hours there's probably too much stuff going on in Diamond League, to be honest. But yeah, then you have like, you know, a discus before the TV window or something. Stuff like that does nothing for the sport. Right, but I, I actually think the Diamond League, the TV window, that is the closest... The, when I watch a Diamond League, that's the closest I feel to watching another regular professional sport because you get a lot of races in a fairly, sh- you know, Two hours is comparable to what you would have for an elite soccer game. It's shorter than a football or basketball game over here. You have a lot of athletes, and mostly they keep the action going. You do have a couple breaks where you can fit in field events, but you've got stuff to fill it in because you have these field events you can catch up with. I think that's close to the format track and field should be shooting for. The problem is these some of these college meets, like if, if it's a regular season meet, like a college invitational or something, that's just all day. You know, some of these meets go on for hours, especially like if it's a distance focused meet that could last two or three hours, you know, sorry, three or four hours. NCAAs takes place over multiple days and between men's and women's, those events, that TV window is more than two hours. I think the Diamond League is a TV product. I think it's among the best we have in the sport, but it's the exception and not the rule. Yeah, a lot of the early season meets are practice. We're watching practice, which is fine. People go out to training camps. People go to spring training. I think there's, I'm with Weldon. I think there's actually too many events in the Diamond League. Like, I wish they would like focus on the really big ones and build it up, particularly in the TV. Like, this is the event of the day. And not just when they're lined up on the start line. Act like the Monaco 1500 is the same as some obscure hurdles race that day. Like, whatever's the big one, hype it up play into it etc but look i mean some of this stuff you know let's just get rid of all the field events now like pole vault are you kidding it's super popular kids love it mondo's a superstar the shot putters are pretty popular on the men's side and i don't know to me i've always said there's not some simple solution otherwise someone would have figured this out i mean it's sort of interesting right because World Athletics a couple years ago proposed cutting what? The 200 from the Diamond League. True or false, right? True. It was gone. It was gone. I think COVID, they brought it back during COVID. 400 hurdles, gone. Yet, in the short term, those are two of the most popular events right now. Lyles versus Knighton is probably about as popular as the 200's been in a long, long time. The 400 hurdles with Sydney. You know, you know, so you'd argue, okay, well, we would have missed out on them. But I don't know. There have been other stars. They'd have been forced to compete in the 400. Like, there's a lot of short-term. There's so many people who will sort of lose a livelihood or something. It's going to be hard to do. I think World Athletics is slowly trying to get to something more like this. But the only other way to get it is to have a sort of live situation, like the live golf tour. Somebody came in and just threw down a bunch of money. 
and said, you got to compete in these events, screw everybody else. That's the only way I see this really happening, unless it being being sort of done sort of very hodgepodge. And then the only way to make that work is then it's like, sorry, you can't compete on these other events. You only can compete in our events. It would have to be a pure, almost live versus PGA thing, I think. The other issue is we talk about all these drastic changes. And if there was some solution where you could just guarantee, hey, if we cut these two events or we make these two changes to the sport, the sport will instantly be popular. I think many in track and field would sign up for that, right? We make the sport bigger. There's going to be more prize money, more attention. It's good for most of the people. The problem is any of these significant changes, you're taking a risk that they're actually going to have any impact at all. Like maybe you could improve... Improving the product, I think in general, that's not going to hurt the sport. But if you're making these decisions to cut events or stuff, and we don't even know if it's going to work in terms of growing the sport or making it more popular, there's going to be a lot of resistance to that change because people are afraid of what of the unknown. Yeah. And I've always said, what's wrong with being super popular once every four years? And I do think my idea, hey, this is one thing I should follow through on. Of, in the off years, when we don't have the world's we have the worlds in the Diamond League. So the Monaco 1500 is the 1500-meter world championships. And then Doha is the high jump because Barshim's there. And whatever's in Sweden is the hub pole vault because Mondo's there. And you have each event will have one world title. Then you use other Diamond Leagues to qualify there. So every meet is meaningful. It's like the regular season um, on steroids. All right, before we get to Boston, distance events. This is mainly a distance podcast, and we haven't even really talked distance. At the Arcadia Invitational out in California, the two-mile times were kind of ridiculous. Really, the depth. Well, first of all, up front, there was meet records set in both the boys' and girls' races. Simeon Birnbaum. Is that one of the guys that broke four last year, John? Yes. He's a junior in high school, broke four. Now he's run 834-10. Not bad. Irene Riggs wins the girls' race in 952.66. But what was crazy about this meet, I mean, and it's true pretty much every year, but it's just more and more every year, was the depth. I think it was, what, 44 boys broke nine flat? That's what I'm seeing, yeah. And then on the girls' side, nine girls broke 10 flat. And I I was trying to find stats to put this in perspective. I mean, there was a thread on Let's Run like 10 or 11 years ago. I was like, 9 flat is the the new 9.15. Because like we were amazed that 14 guys broke 9 flat at Arcadia. That was like 11 years ago. And then two years later, like 18 or 16 did it. And we were amazed by that. Now we've got super shoes and it's just 42. But in the entire 1990s, I should ask you this, guys, as a question mark. Guess how many boys broke nine flat for the two mile in the U.S.? High school boys. I'll say six. I won't be a jerk and say seven. I'll say 12. Or 32. 17 runners did it. But that's only because seven did it in 1999. Between from 1990 to 1998, there was only ten boys total. 
This is according to Team Kenya, writing on the message board in 2015. How many did in this race? 42. Or 44? 44. In 1993, 1995, and 1998, not a single boy in the U.S. broke nine flat. I was looking at the girls' list. I mean, track and field news only publishes their list. I, I think you can maybe go back to their digital archive, but on, they only, on their website, they only list, if you're a subscriber, high school list back to 2003. 2003, leading high school time, 10-12 by Ariana Lambie. Sec, next second place, Nicole Boyd, 10-22. 2004, 10.01, Caitlin Chuck. 2005, Nicole Blood, 10.15. 2006, 10.09. I mean, I, I don't even, like, we're talking 15 years ago, no girls were doing it. Now we got nine to it. I mean, it used to be one girl would win and then somebody would be 30 seconds behind her, Arcadia. The depth in the women's running is crazy. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine and he's friends with a, God, I don't want to dox somebody again. Top college coach. Top college coach is pretty vague, right, John, in that term? Yes. Okay. This coach has, like, close to double digits. People coming in as a freshman class next year. Nine or five or better. And they watched Arcadia, and they thought, I thought I had a pretty good class coming in. Now I think it's terrible. But if you want a name to watch... I mean, Simeon Birnbaum obviously is going to Oregon. He's had four last year, and he won the race. But my friend who said that Donovan Brazier was a better prospect in high school than Grant Fisher, when no one thought that, now it's up for debate, but a few years ago, he looked like a genius. He was raving about Rocky Hansen, third placer in this race in Arcadia. 8.34, claimed the kid's been hurt has run zero workouts and had been running like like three miles once a week or something. It was crazy how little this guy was training. And he heard he was going out to the race, and he's like, why is this kid going out to the race? He hasn't done any workouts. Well, 8.34. Trivia, John, where is Rocky Hansen going to college next year? Well, he's from North Carolina, right? Is he going to North Carolina? No, I was happy to hear this because a lot of times people used to think, oh, you have a good year, Robert. You guys are going to na- nail the recruits. I'm like, dude, the recruits don't pay any attention to the results. They just go to the brand names or whatever they want. But this kid's going to Wake Forest. John Hayes had a great year this year. He's headed to Wake. Top cross-country program in North Carolina on the men's side. Well, I t- tend to put a lot of stock in what your friend says. He's pretty smart about running, Robert, so I'll certainly be keeping my eye on him. But I let's give a shout-out. Daniel Simmons, second in this race. I mean, it's ridiculous. You can run 834 and get third now in a high school, 3,200 meters. I mean, 832 was like a fantasy time back when I was in high school. But Daniel Simmons was second in this race, and he's a junior, and he ran 834. So that's also pretty incredible. One thing I would say, though, with... The crazy depth and all the super shoes, high school times, they're kind of losing all meaning. That means that now you can't, I don't feel as bad about myself and my comparing my high school times. It actually, I feel like it makes it easier for us old timers. I ran 922 for a full two mile back in 2009, which I thought was a decent time. It's not like national caliber, but now I can say, hey, with the adjustment from a two mile to 3200 and plus all these super shoes, I mean, 
pretty soon I'm going to be equivalent of a sub nine guy in 2023 or 2025 maybe. So that, that, that's I'm going to start bragging now. I'll just say yeah, converted sub nine guy. Right? Is that fair, Robert? Because I feel like if you take off four seconds, you get to 918. That's a 3200. By like 2025, 2030, I would say at least. Shoe technology will be good enough in 2030 that I can remove 18 seconds from my time and call myself a sub nine guy. Yeah. Particularly if you're a coach by my friend. I guess I should shout out to his name, Chris Catton. You can be coached by him at Run CCG. He's got like tons of great high schoolers on his roster. He used to coach Craig Ingalls. All right. From the lowest spectrum, I want to go up in age. Talk about a 40-year-old who probably is in his last year of professional running. His name's Mo Farah. You may have heard of him. He ran a race over the weekend. Now, this race was on the homepage, so you guys might have read about it. I'm going to tell you the name of the city. It was Port Gentile. Do either of you know what country this race was held in? I'm going to take a guess. You will be wrong. Wait, Port Gentile was the name of the city? Yes. Because I've done. I was doing research on this race for the week that was, and then I'm like, I actually went to Wikipedia, but I don't even remember. I never. I didn't think this place was a country. I never heard of it. Gabor. It's Gabon, but yes, that was where the that was where Mo Farah ran this race. Now, he's also taken money to advertise the Djibouti, like port authority or something like that and he's running Djibouti so I imagine that they paid him to show up in this thing he's been training in Ethiopia so it's not that far away but I did think it was it was like wait Mo Farah is running a road 10k in Gabon two weeks before the London Marathon now the quality of this I mean this wasn't like a joke of a race the winning time was 28-11 but it did not go Mo Farah did not run fast and I don't know if this is because He's just focused on London and he was showing up for the check or if he's just legitimately not in shape. My guess is it's a combination of both because his other race results, re- week, you know, his re- other recent race results, notwithstanding his defeat at his child's sports day, he ran 28-46. He got beat last year in London on the roads uh, by a club runner made a lot of headlines. I guess he ran 61.49 last fall for a half marathon. That's not that bad. Like, it's much better than 30.41. Like, when you guys see this result, are you writing him off for London, or do you just think he showed up to get the check? Because he is running the London Marathon, probably his final London Marathon, two weeks from now. What do you make of his 30.41 for eighth place in Gabon? I 100% wrote him off, John. I didn't read anything about the race until this podcast started. And then I, some reason pulled up, I'm like, where is this thing? Pulled up the website and then started Wikipedia it. This is an IWF gold label race. We may need to go to this one. Gabon, fly us out, baby. Well, first of all, I written him off. I just saw the thread this weekend. Fair is done. I'm like 30, 40. And then I was trying to figure out what race this was. Got smoked by like two and a half minutes. Then I felt a little bit better the more research I did. First of all, he went out, for five, first 5K around 1420 was what I read on the message board. So it's hot and humid. So maybe he just wasn't feeling it and decided to bag it. And I also was thinking, 
how much is he getting paid? And what's going on in this country? But now that I've done some research of Gabon, I'm, I really I'm, I want to praise them. The very rich African country. Okay, here's another trivia question. What do you think the GDP per capita is? I want you to rank them and list them for the following three countries. Highest to lowest, Gabon, Kenya, and Ethiopia. We'll only do one of you. Whoever feels most confident can go. Gabon, one, Kenya, two, Ethiopia, three. And how much do you think the values are? 20,000. 10,000, 20,000, 15,000, 10,000. I don't know. I don't know what the the numbers are, but I know Kenya is about twice what Ethiopia is. I'm going to go much smaller numbers like 15,000 Gabon. No, 20,000 Gabon, 1,500 for Kenya, 750 for Ethiopia. John, you need to check your American privilege at the door. Well, it's at least close. Gabon is... is 8,000, over 8,000, 8,600. Kenya's 22,000. Ethiopia is $925. So the average Gabonian is pulling in, when it was average, but if you average it out over the country, nine times as much as Ethiopia. I was like, originally, I was like, how, how can they find money to pay? I've never heard of this country. It's well, way, off, way better off than Kenya and Ethiopia. Okay, I apologize. That was clearly a horrific guess. And I guess I guess I was just thinking in the United States, the very the top one percent make so much money that they pull up everyone else, but you don't I, you probably don't have the same wealth disparity and you know, these multi multi billionaires that are inflating the average because I know the GD the average Kenyan, you know, farmer isn't making much, but I wasn't sure how many all right, anyway. Digging my grave here, that was a stupid stupid guess by me. What's the U.S. average GDP? Well, I'm shocked by this. U.S., Canada, Japan, I see them all. Is it like 33000 Or am I just way off on that as well? $70,000 in the U.S. All right. I just don't know economics then. 52000 in Canada. Almost 40000 in Japan. 40000 where? Japan. Great Britain, please. In Japan? GDP in Japan per person is half the U.S. No, it's almost forty thousand versus seventy thousand. All right, this isn't an economics podcast. It is. Gabon, John, they've got some money anyway. Mo Farah, he got look. I don't begrudge the guy. If this is last year on the circuit, he wants to pick up a couple more paychecks. Well, sure. I mean, you know, how many more appearance fees does this guy have in his career? I'm sure he'll have sponsorships. He'll be fine when he retires. But. I don't really blame him for going to get paid. I just thought it was a little weird to do it two weeks before London. And I do, like you guys, I'm worried by this result. I mean, you show up, you run 14.20, and then you run, what, you're saying he came home in 16.20 for his second 5K, Robert? I don't really care how hot it is. That's not a good performance if you're looking to run with the best in the world. He hasn't run a marathon since 2019 in Chicago. That one didn't go all that great. Kate tried to come back to the track. That didn't go great for him. I don't know. He is, he usually rises to the occasion, but he's 40 years old now. He's been doing this for a very long time and he's got a very tough field in front of him in London. So I'm not particularly optimistic about his chances. I mean, where do you put him? Over under what? 208? I was going to say 210. 
and I'm going over. I think he'll try to go out relatively fast, maybe in the second group, and then blow up. But hey, I'm sure there's a few fans out there thinking, hey, no, he was just practicing, John, for the first 5K here. Just practicing running the winning pace at London. 1420 is like 2540. So. It was 3040 for marathon pace. That's not. <laughs> that probably wouldn't win him London, would it? 3040? No, that's like 208. Yeah, 20928 pace. So it's worrying. I mean, the one thing I would say is. Mo Farah, when he was talking to the media earlier this year, he told us that last fall, going into London, he was had been training with Bashir Abdi. He thought he was in fairly similar shape, and Bashir Abdi was bronze medal at Worlds, then third at London. So he's not that far removed from being in good shape, but he's had injuries and in the past couple of years. I don't know. I think I would take... I'd probably take over for 208 for 210. I don't know. I feel like he could be in the 208 to 210 range, but we'll find out more from him. He'll speak to the media next week in London. We'll have boots on the ground reportage. I'll be there for the press conference. So we'll find out more then. What was his last marathon, John? Chicago in 2019. And the time was? He finished eighth place in... 209.58. Oh, God. I think he's going to go out in like 63, 64 in London and then totally just bag it. I was going to say 212, but I think he'll be just waving to the crowd and 214 or even higher. Even DNF. Well, I think it's probably a payment issue, so maybe he'll finish. All right. We have... London Marathon Talk, we'll talk about it next week in more depth. But let's talk about Boston, guys. This won't be our full blowout preview, which we will do on Friday after talking to the stars. I think maybe, would it be the first podcast we've ever recorded, all three of us in the same location? I think it could be history, guys. Our microphones might explode. But there are some questions I've got for you guys, some topics I want to hit. So let's just run through them. Number one, men's race, Eli Kipchoge. We all know he's running the Boston Marathon. Fun fact for you guys. He is the current world record holder. When is the last time the current men's world record holder ran the Boston Marathon? All right, here's a hint. I'll tell you the person's name, Wait, no, and then you can guess. guess the year. Because I'm not sure if you'll even recognize the name. Oh, okay. The last time... The last man who ran Boston as the world record holder, his name was Jim Peters from Great Britain. Can you guess a year, what year that was? What? It's going to be like the 60s. No, that'd be like Amby Burford or something. 19... No, it might be earlier. 1958. Robert? 1954. Nailed it! 1954 is the last time uh, the world record holder on the men's side ran the Boston Marathon as the world record holder. That what? is a mind-blowing stat for me. How? Are you sh- you double-checked this? I looked this up on Wikipedia, and then I texted Chris Lotzbaum, the BAA communication head. I said, when's the last time? And he said, Jim Peters. I looked past all the people after Jim Peters. We've had people... Break the world record and run Boston. 
but someone has already broken their world record. We've had people break, run Boston and then break the world record. But as far as we both could tell, Jim Peters was the last guy who actually stood at the line as the world record holder. This is shocking. I mean, this is amazing. With all the history of Boston, it shows their fields had slipped a little bit or something. Well, no, I mean... I, I mean I, it's- it shows two things well then. In recent years, they haven't always been able to get the world record holder because, you know, London will have more appearance money. But also, sometime, even before this huge disparity in budgets, the world record holder, if you set the world record, it means by definition you're good at flat, fast courses, right? You might not want to show up and run Boston. You might not think it's as well suited. You might rather do London or a different spring marathon. So... This is historic, seeing Kipchoge rock it. Uh, before you threw out that name, I was going to throw out a name myself. And you guys remember when I had that machine that could play the sound effects? I need to figure out how to set that up so I can go... Bang. I'm, I'm going to say a name to you, John. It's very recent. You were working for Let'sRun.com when this man ran Boston, and I believe he was a world record holder. He was at least supposed to run Boston... Now, that's one of the problems with Telestops or this results database is sometimes they don't run it and they don't list them as DNFs. But I'm reading here right here, our friend Nick Zaccardi, January 12th, 2017. Boston Marathon Field adds world record holder. Marathon world record holder Dennis Camito will try to rekindle his career at the Boston Marathon on April 17th. Camito did hold the world record until 2018. So do we know if he ran Boston that year? Um, yeah, Robert, I'm looking at this article from March 17th of 2017. World record holder withdraws from 2017 Boston Marathon. So Komedo actually never made it to the start line that year. I did consider that, though. But since we're considering... We consider Jared Nagus to be an Olympian. And he ever never actually made it to the start line either. Komedo had a, bo- a valid Boston qualifying time. He entered the race. He just was unable to participate. And he even went a step farther than Yard Nagus. He stepped aside ahead of time so someone else could take his spot. Wow. I won't have Yard Nagus's name dragged through the mud here for sure. Yard went to Tokyo. He warmed up for his race. Dennis Kometo didn't do either of those things in 2017. It's interesting. Kometo ran Boston, he, he started Boston in 2014, just months before he would set the world record. He didn't finish that race. We've seen stuff like that happen before. The other comparison I thought was interesting, Abebe Pekila, one of the all-time greats of the marathon, I would say the only guy who's close to Kipchoge in terms of historical dominance. From 1960 to 1966, he ran 13 marathons. He won 12 of them, including the 1960 and 64 Olympics. The only race he didn't win in that span? The 1963 Boston Marathon where he finished fifth. I think that's the comparison here. I'm not saying Kipchoge is going to finish fifth, but there is precedent for the greatest marathoner of his era who is successful, runs fast, wins Olympics, showing up to Boston in his prime and getting beat. For the record... On this broadcast, when everyone's dropping this quote that no world record holders run the marathon since run Boston since 1950, I wanted to say, as it first discovered by Jonathan Galt, that is a it's a fact, John. But you were the first one to report it. 
you went and looked it up. Like you deserve credit for that, and they will all steal your thing without attribution. We know how that works in the running world. Usually, they'll say it's first reported by so and so. I mean, discovering facts is a little bit different, but this one's obscure enough. You deserve credit. This well, deserves an article on its own. I think I'm going to include it in this article I'm writing about Kipchoge. I think I'm going to give a little credit to Chris Lotzman because I texted him when I was still looking for this. I was like, can you confirm? And he gave up, he came up with PDIS without me even suggesting the name. So give either one of us credit. But anyway, all right. That gets me to the larger discussion I want to have here. You owe your career to Chris Lotzman, John, because before you repeatedly called and tried to get me to respond to my emails for an internship at Let's Run, Young Chris was just across the bridge in Ithaca, New York, at Ithaca College. And I was busy coaching. He said, I want to intern, blah, blah, blah. And I, I just never really responded. But his impetus made me think, maybe these young guys deserve a shot. And then when you followed up a few years later, he got the gig. You got the gig, excuse me. Wow, that's a great story. I got to tell that to Chris. I'm not sure if he's aware of that whole thing. I think he'd, he'd get a kick out of that. I think he's pretty happy with his position at the BAA now. Anyway, talking about Boston. Simple question, guys. I offer you a million dollars and I say, you have to bet this on one of two outcomes. Elliot Kipchoge wins the race or someone else wins the race. Who are you putting your money on? Put it like that, John? It's easy. Elliot Kipchoge wins the race. Even money, he, he'll be better than even money. DraftKings, please get on this. I have some concerns this race may not be bettable in any state now, but if you're a legal U.S. sports book or an offshore sports book and have a line on the game, please email me, wejo at letsrun.com. But John, his odds, Kipchoge, this is a very good field. Now, you have Evans Chibet who won New York and Boston last year. And Vincent Capruto, who won Boston the year before. And Kipchoge. And Boston also doesn't water it down after that. You got, you know, guys who could win if some of those guys falter. Yeah, so. Gabriel Gua of Tanzania, who ran 203 flat in Valencia. And you've also got the guy who beat who won the lo- the race the last time Kipchoge was beaten in a marathon, Shura Katada, 2020 London champion. My boy Daniel Donacimiento is out. But there's a lot of variables on this men's side. I mean, if you had to water down Boston, I'm like, well, Kipchoge, hold the- how will the hold up on the hills? The course is the great equalizer in Boston. And then the weather sometimes. So there's a lot of doubt, but I still think Kipchoge is going to have better than 50-50 odds when the betting lines are set on this race, which they better be. I had muted you guys and was asking John Killock for his advice. I'm not really quite sure what Weldon said. I want to see the betting odds. I think I'd put them at like three out of four. But I have to bet no. I'm on record saying he'll never win the Boston Marathon. I'm feeling a little bit bad about that, but... I'm thinking about writing this article. Originally, it was going to be, what if Elliot Kipchoge loses? Because 
I seem to be, while I made the 15940 goat shirts, I also made the 15940 goat shirts with an asterisk. By the way, if you don't have your Kipchoge themed shirt, get it today at shop.letsrun.com. Wait, what if there's a tailwind? Huge tailwind. They break 15940. We'll have to unload these things real quickly. Put them on discount. It's the one reason why I made the shirts because I thought I could have inventory. I don't do print on demand, folks. I always heard screen printing is way better. They seem to hold up in the wash. But I lost my train of thought talking about the damn shirts. You're saying what if he loses? Yeah. To me, I mean, for years, I'm like, we know he's the best rabbit to, in a perfectly flat rabbited race. He's virtually unbeatable. He's lost two in his life, right? One, it took a world record to beat him. And that person was popped for drugs? Whereabouts, but yes. And then, two, we got an ear infection on a rainy day. I mean, I guess he's allowed to be sick once every 10 years. But I'm like, we don't know that he can win a hilly race, he's never, but he's never won a hilly race. I guess you used to say, we don't know he can win a non-rabbited race, and he's just had no problem with the Olympics. I mean, zero problem. He dominates the Olympics. He wins those by more than the majors. But I thought if he, if he loses a couple of years ago, I'm like, okay, if he loses or doesn't run these races, that's going to be a hole in his resume. It's like Pete Sampras never won the French Open. But this guy's resume is so much better than anyone else's. I almost can't write this article. I thought about changing it, John. Maybe you're advice. No, I'm the editor for you and give you some feedback. But like, what if he does win it and wins New York? Then it's basically like the perfect resume. I mean, as perfect as humanly possible. Like, there's only seven guys that have ever won New York and Boston. He's going to have done that and then won like 12 out of 14 other races, including a 159.42 Olympic titles. As you said, you could take the first half of his marathon career, and that's the be- second best marathon career in history. The second half is is the best marathon career in history. Like he's just so much better than everyone else. If he does the Boston and New York on top of it, it's insane. But if he loses, originally I was thinking it was going to be a big hole. But now I'm like, man, it's kind of just, you're just looking for something to be a hot take. But I thought originally people were going to say, oh, he's just old. Oh, he moved to Boston and New York too late. But no. This dude just set the world record last fall. There's no excuses of he's too old. The weather looks like it's going to be nothing crazy, right, John? I haven't seen the latest. It keeps changing every day. It looks fine. Well, I do think the man, if he loses, the manner in which he loses and how the rest of his, you know, the next couple of years go, you're going to be able to put that in context. Like if he loses, but it's because his foot cramped up or something with 10 miles to go, then you're like, well, yeah, he lost, but. Was it because it was Boston or was it because he had the random bad luck that plagues every marathoner at some point or another? I don't know. So I think we have to wait until the race is over to actually reach a conclusion on that. But what I do think is, yes, if he wins Boston and New York, he will have 100 percented the marathon. This is not something we ever thought people would do. If you In tennis, if you win all the majors and you win the Olympics, that's basically 100% career, you know. You've done everything you can in the sport. The marathon, for so long, we thought there's too many major marathons and they're too different. And a marathoner's career is so 
small. Your prime is usually only, you know, maybe less than five years, even for the best athletes. That to the idea of anyone winning all six world marathon majors in the Olympics and setting a world record and going sub two is just laughable. No one would have even thought that would be possible during one career. And for Kipchoge to do that, I don't think anyone would ever come close to touching him. Like, for as long as I'm alive, I don't think, apart from Kipchoge, anyone will ever win all six world marathon majors and the Olympics. I just don't see that happening by anyone else. It's He's such an outlier compared to all other marathoners in history. But unless I have money on it against him, originally, you know, two or three years ago, I was like, I'm rooting against this dude. And now I'm like, I don't know if I can. It's like watching. I always say I like the underdogs, but I also like just dominance. The greatest ever. The dynasty, Mike Tyson in his prime. Yeah, it's going to be a sight to see. I'm. It's so cool that Kipchoge is going to be running in Boston. We'll talk a little bit more about that later in the week. All right, another question I have for you guys. Look at the start list here. I'm struggling to call one woman in this field a favorite. And maybe that's ridiculous because we have a woman who's run 214.58. She's third fastest all time. No one else has run faster than 217 in this field. That's Amane Bariso, who just won Valencia. But that's really her own, that's her only performance close to that level. And before that, she'd kind of been doing nothing for the previous few years. So is she the favorite? Or is it Jocelyn Jepkosgai, who has won New York and London in the past? She was second in London in the fall. Just ran 64-46 and a half in Barcelona. Is it Lona Salpeter, who was third at Worlds last year? Or Godi Tom Gebreslasi, the world champion last year? Or is it Edna Kiplagar, who's won Boston twice, but it's now 43 years old? Or 42, sorry, let me get that right. Yes, she's 43 years old, but always runs well in Boston. Or is it Helen O'Beary, who was just added to the field? Albel Yeshina, who was second last year, five seconds behind Perez Jipchirchir. Do you guys think there's a favorite? Or if you had to pick a favorite right now, who would you choose? That's a good one, John. I'd love to see the lines on this one. I think when the line comes out, Mane Barisa will be your favorite. She's run two and a half minutes faster than anyone else in this field. Out of nowhere, she dropped her PB from 220.48 to 214.58 last year in Valencia. That 220 was like way back in like 2016 or something like that. This woman's half marathon PB, well, officially, 70.54. I mean, you can do the no. math. What? Well, She's running 68.43 in Rome, which is downhill. But Okay. On a flat course, it's over 70 minutes. And she ran 2.14 for the marathon. And then I'm like, well, Sheila chipped Curie. She's second on the list in terms of PB. She, she's not nearly as credentialed. Jocelyn Jepkowski is the most credentialed person in this field. And I'm like, okay, she was on 217. That's pretty good. She's run a bunch of 64-minute half marathons. So she's got the engine. She got beat by Amane by two and a half minutes in Valencia last year. She was in Valencia, got beat. I mean, then 
Gibbs last the world champ. When you said the name Helen O'Beary, John, I kind of started thinking might get a lot, some really good value there that the bookies don't appreciate. And then you throw the damn course on top of the, the same thing. Okay, you're in 214 in Valencia. I don't know how, how you're going to do in this course. So then that would point to somebody who's like, can handle it, like Edna Kippel got. But I will say for the record, there is no way she wins this race. None. We're just getting it out there. It can't happen. But if anyone's going to pull like a Dez, it's going to be her. So, Oh, what I'm going to... I'll tell you what will happen. Edna Kiplegaard is going to be charging over the last five miles as they're running through Brookline and down into Boston. She's going to be p- picking people off. The question is, what place will she, she be battling for? I find it unlikely that it will be for the win, but I say this every year, and she's always somewhere in the mix. Her, her five last five Boston marathons, first, eighth, second, first, fourth. So, pretty remarkable. I don't think anyone's mentioned the name of Sharon Lucchetti, the New York City Marathon champion. Because she withdrew from the race a few weeks ago. Thank you, John. Well, John was saying some names that are absurd. Edna Kippegott, no chance. She's too old. Salpeter, she'll probably win it now that I'm writing her off, but she never wins anything. She always... I mean, she runs stacked races, don't get me wrong. Second in New York, third in the world, second in Nagoya last year, fifth in London. She's won Tokyo in the past, for the record. But I think Brizo's going to would be the betting favorite. But there's going be some really interesting odds in this. I'd love to see O'Berry's odds, Walden said. I think Obiri and Yashana, who was second last year, former half marathon world record holder. I think people overlook her a little bit, but look, if you're almost beating Perez Jepchirchir and you've run well on this course before, yeah, I'm going to give you a lot of credit for that. So I think you guys are right. Bariso, just her PR is so overwhelmingly faster than everyone else's. You kind of have to give her the favorite status by default, like in terms of betting at least. That's probably who... You know, people, if you're setting the lines and that sort of thing, you look at the PB and you would say her, but I'm certainly not close to taking her over the field versus Kipchoge. You know, I think her odds would be plus 300 or something like that. I think that's probably a reasonable line, maybe even higher than that. There are so many other people who can win. I need to get my sound effect machine going again. What do you think Kipchoge should do strategy-wise, guys? We've seen some people miscalculate Boston, even the Olympics. Remember that the London Olympics, John, when the guy went out crazy fast at like before 10K? If I'm Kipchoge, I do nothing until we're through the hills. Point is that. 21 miles is the top of Heartbreak Hill. Yeah, people get carried away. Why do it? Just, you know, that's the thing in some of these races with the Kipchoge. There's people near him, 23, 24, and then he just pulls away. So I would wait, but. I'm looking at the. This is why we need to change things up. You know, we're talking about making the sport more popular. I, one thing we didn't say about the events, like I don't think we should cancel the events, but we, we one year in the Diamond League you have the 100, the next year you have the 200. You know, but I don't know. Do you get rid of the 1500 one year? Only have the eight, make everybody run the eight. That might be bad. But 
like one thing you could do for Boston, I've always said you have a rabbit race, an unrabbited race. It's kind of like the up year and down year in comrades, the ultra marathon to make it more interesting. But you could also have a huge, I've always thought these races have a gigantic course record bonus. If there's a tailwind, put it out there. And the wind looks like it's going to be 7 to 14 miles an hour out of either the northwest or west. Now, the course goes from southwest to northeast, so you want it really out of the southwest. But it's going to be pushing them, and they're going to be, it looks like, to be aided by the wind. So it, it wouldn't stun me if somebody else took it out that he breaks the course record. No, it wouldn't stun me either if they're fast enough halfway. I think the interesting thing here, Robert, usually if I was giving Kipchoge advice, which I don't really think I need to, but you know, if we've seen his Olympic marathons, he'll just kind of hang with everyone, and then with maybe five miles to go or something, he kind of drops the hammer and pulls away from everyone because he's running faster than they can handle. I would say that's pretty much what you would do for Boston, like you said, just attack off the hills. The issue is the last two Boston Marathon champions both employed that strategy. Like, and Benson Kipruto in 2021, he closed 1406 was his 5K split from 35K to 40K. He just flew on those downhills through Brookline and Boston. Same thing, Evans Chabet last year. He split 1355 for that section of the race. He went 427, 426, 426, 437 from miles 22 through 25. So it's hard to go a lot faster than that. 1355? Yeah, 1355. Now those are downhill splits, but... But like, my God, like this could be fascinating because if he loses, people say, oh, he didn't push the pace early enough, blah, blah, blah. But no, I, like Renato Canova gets mocked sometimes for this, like, oh, you can know, you know, drugs don't help you because you can't be better than perfect. But there is like a limit to what human beings can do. Like, how fast can you run all out after you've run a 20-mile warm-up? It'd be fascinating if these guys... I mean, that's what's amazing about this year. It's not we got Kipchoge in a watered-down field. What if we get these guys in the same form they were in the last couple of years, and they run a 13.55? Can he run a 13.45 and beat them? That's the question, Robert. Like, do you take your chances and just say, I'm going to run something insane? Because I think that's possible. I think Kipchoge, if anyone's going to run a 13.45... 5k in that stretch it's going to be Kipchoge but I would also say maybe it's in his best interest to not push an insane pace but you're at the front you try to keep making it honest you don't you don't let it go too slow through halfway you know you try to make it 63 or 64 minutes maybe through halfway as opposed to like something a lot slower than that and then maybe yeah, that burns them off or at least means that they're not going to be closing in 13.55 or something like that. Because yeah, if you told me that Evans Chabet's going to be able to rip 13.55 again for that stretch, I mean, Kipchoge would have to be a little worried, right? Yeah, but I don't want to act as a rabbit for the field. Now, if there's a tailwind, it doesn't, you know, you're not battling the wind. Actually, there's an advantage to being out in front by yourself because then you're getting the full push of the wind. Everybody else is being blocked by other competitors. Oh, it's fascinating. I'm very interested to see how he chooses to play it. When I signed up for my press credential, I put something there about being in the lead truck. I've never been in the lead truck. I haven't really followed up on that. I'm tired of actually having to work. I thought it might be fun to see what the crowd's like. Do, do media members, do we get to jump out in Wellesley College and get kissed by the girls like the, the runners, or is that just for the runners, John? Do you have to actually run in the race, too? I think you actually have to run in the race, Robert. 
Also, I somewhat buried the lead here, guys. Robert's going to probably get mad at me, but I did talk to the coach of Benson Kiprudo and Evans Chubet earlier this morning, and you know some of those insights will go into an article in our preview later this week, but they trained together under Claudio Baradelli and Capsabet Kenya, and... Yeah, I kind of just wanted to check in and see how things were going. And I got a couple nuggets to share. One is that Chibet had a bit of an injury after he won New York last year. And then he got married in December. So it was an Achilles injury. He didn't really get training until January. I don't, it didn't seem to me that that would be a huge issue because you still get a pretty solid buildup. He said his buildup had gone well since then, but you know, he missed a little bit more time than you would usually miss. Um, after the marathon. The other thing, they trained, sounded like they were trained together for most of their sessions. And Berardelli said it was kind of hard to say exactly who was ahead of the other one, but he seemed to suggest that Kipruto kind of had the higher upside uh, because Chibet, this is kind of the peak. He's run... I think this is like his 27th or 28th marathon something. He's run a lot of marathons in his career. And obviously he's coming off an incredible year. He won Boston and New York last year. But this that's about as good as he can get. Whereas, and yeah, we just said, yeah, 1355. I mean, if he comes out and does that in Boston again, he's going to be competitive. But Benson Kibrudo, who just won Chicago and who won Boston in 2021, he's relatively, uh, he's earlier in his career than Chibet, he thinks he could still be ascending that we may not have seen his best marathon yet. So, you know, if you're going to pick between one of the two, two, you might lean towards Kiprudo, but still a little hard to tell. And he did mention, you know, it's possible that they could work together at some point. They haven't really discussed it all that much, but it's probably something they'll at least have a conversation about before they fly out to Boston later this week. But it's not like no oh, Chibet may not be on the upswing, but his peak is pretty good, John, as you just said, 1355. But also two or three flat in Valencia when everybody showed up in Valencia. The Olympic year. Yeah, 2020 all. he he ran that uh Yeah. This guy no, he's been incredible the last few years. So if he if he comes up and shows up in the same shape he was in Boston last year. Uh, Elliot will have his hands full. I mean, here's his last races since 20. Well, he's DNF in Boston 2018. Since then, Evan Shibet 2019, second Milan, first in Buenos Aires 205 flat 2020, first in Otsu, first in Valencia 203 flat, fourth in London 205 43, first in New York, first in Boston. So he's won five of his last six marathons. All right, guys, anything else on Boston before we get to the Camille Heron interview? Obviously, we'll have a lot to say about this later in the week. We'll have previews coming out as well. So this is by no means the end of our Boston discussion, but any other final thoughts before you guys head over and get boots on the ground here? John, there's a reason there's a VIP area in the club. You just Sometimes you got to pay... Pay to see what goes on, people. Join the supporters club to find my final thoughts on the Boston Marathon. I mean, we'll have all the insight from Boston right there. You got to join if you're not a supporters club member. You save on shirts. I mean, you save on shoes. You get a free shirt if you join for a year. I think 80% of the people are year members. It's the best value in running. 
And you get a free beer if you're going to be in Boston this weekend and you meet up for our meetup on Friday night. Let's Run will pay for your first beer. Yes. Remember, we're going to be at Dylan's, 6.30 p.m. on Boylston Street. Subject to change if it's super full, but I think that's our plan. Well, we have an iPad there. We'll be able to check their supporters club. I mean, how, how can I, someone could just come in with a fake supporters club name. Like, hey, I'm Steve, Stevie4325. Everybody knows the ID card, the passport, supporters club passport. Bring your passport. Please show your supporters club tattoo. Well, do we give them a code word on the show? Well, the Friday show is going to be, we'll be recording on Friday, so maybe not. But All right, I everyone. Wait, we, we, we should let Weldon, when John, was Weldon's employees allowed to have his special private guest list of, Sure, he's got some. Well, it's difficult with John. I, mean, I, I never mind. I don't want to go there. John gets mad when I talk about his personal life. But I was thinking he might try to slip three or four girls on the list, and then they might find out about each other, though. So you know, that John, just leave it outside of work. I might Except invite for- a couple people. You can come to Let's Run and hang out with us. And th- I mean, the main thing for supporters club members is we will buy your first beer. If you're not in the supporters club member, if you just stop by and. Hang out and drink a beer with us. It's fine. We just won't be paying for it. All right, everyone. Uh, Really looking forward to meeting any listeners who decide to show up in Boston. If you're running Boston and you're listening to this, best of luck. This is the easiest part right now. And on Monday, just go out there and have some fun. It's an amazing race. I ran it in 2016. It didn't go well for me, but the support unlike any other race I've ever been in. It was, it was awesome. The crowds are out there. They're loud. Great. Everyone in there, you know, it's really a good time. I mean, you're doing something I've never... John, you did something I've never done. I feel like it's the one thing I really need to do in the sport is run a Boston Marathon. Got to qualify first, Weldon. But don't I have get to ahead qualify. Of yourself. I know all these... I don't know if I want to do two more marathons. But Eric Westland, our web programmer, will be in it. Track him. W-E-S-T-L-U-N-D. There you go, Eric. He claimed he's out of shape. Sorry, buddy. Now you're being tracked by everyone on the internet. All right. Here's Camille Heron, arguably the greatest female ultra runner ever. The only woman to hold the outright American record in an event. She's faster than the American men have ever run for 48 hours. I'll give more of her accolades. Comrades Marathon Champion, 50K, 100K World Champion, four-time Ultra Marathoner of the Year, Supporters Club member. Here she is. Joined by a very special guest, Camille Heron. She's just told me, sort of coming to Let'sRun.com at the very beginning, fall of 2000. She's a Orders Club member. She's arguably the greatest woman's ultra marathoner ever, a Comrades champion, a 50K, 100K world champion, a four-time IAU ultra runner of the year. She's sponsored by Lululemon Koros, and now she's the world record holder at, hopefully I get all these right, Camille, 50 <laughs> miles, 100K, 100 miles, 12 hours, 24 hours and now 48 hours thanks to her running 
435 kilometers, 270.5 miles at the, whoa, I didn't ask you how to say this, the Sri Chimnoy 48-hour festival in Australia. <laughs> Camille, thanks for joining us and congratulations. Thanks, Walden. I, uh, yeah, I, I, my, my brain is still a bit fuzzy from the race, and I was like, I was like, I think we got some things incorrect, but that's okay. <laughs> All right, well, you, can, you can correct we me tried. afterwards, and I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> okay. append it to the end uh, of the podcast. <laughs> but you've been on vacation, well earned. I think a lot of runners take a vacation after a marathon, but after running for 48 hours straight. You definitely deserved it. And in that race, you became the first American woman to hold an outright distance record. Like, you beat the men's record. So that's another cool feat. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, I've set some pretty lofty goals for myself. And, um, yeah, being being able to surpass the men's American records, I mean, that was that was really a dream come true. I just can't believe it actually happened. So... Um, yeah, I'm really grateful for my ability and that I finally was able to do that. But um, yeah, I've been been inspired by Let's Run since the beginning. So so yeah, it's pretty cool to finally get to chat with you. Yeah, it's crazy. I remember like you were posting on there, um, you know, prior to being you were, you were just like a runner. <laughs> you weren't an ultra running star. You'd never run an ultra. You'd post advice on there and. People thought it was cool because you you know you're, I think you're a three-time Olympic trials marathon qualifier and so let's start with a 48-hour race first oh, and sure, then we get sure. we can get into like how you became an ultra star. <laughs> um, but the 48-hour race, I mean, it's it's crazy. Like, I guess before this, what's the longest you had run? Like, was it 24 hours? Yeah, yeah, the 24-hour world record. So um, 167.8 miles, I think is what it is. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, 24 hours is really, really hard. So um, I mean, it was really, it was really hard to imagine going two days of, you know, what is already a hard distance. And people had told me that um, Giannis Corozza's 48-hour world record was maybe the toughest record because um, it was just so far out there. And I don't even know what the, the next closest man, you know, is like 20-something miles behind. Um, and and so, so, yeah, I mean, it was just it was just hard to imagine, you know, doing two days of 24 hours. But, you know, I mean, we, we deep dive into the unknown and we find out if we can swim. So <laughs> I think I... I, you know, it took me two tries and, um, you know, it's been a humbling journey to achieving this and um, it took me two tries and I failed both times. And, you know, finally the third try, I was able to get it right. And, um, oh boy, you know, did I get it right? So, um, so yeah, I'm really, really grateful for, you know, it was, it was a heck of a race, a heck of a journey. And, um, you know, I'm finishing feeling, you know, really you know, just really, just feeling amazing that you know I achieved. You know what I what I set out to do. So, yeah. So I want to show my ignorance. What happened in the first two tries, <laughs> and when were those? Yeah, I so I actually wore carbon plated shoes my first two tries, and I ended up having a whole lot of foot pain and hip pain and back pain. And um, I had to curtail those attempts because I was my body was just in too much pain. 
And so, and so, yeah, finally on this third try, um, I've been able to really focus on getting myself healthy the past two years and um, felt really strong and healthy and able to go for it again. And I actually wore non-carbon plated shoes for this attempt. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, it's, I'm still, you know, in a lot of pain and fatigue when I do that, but um, it definitely felt better, you know, wearing non-carbon plated shoes. I, and felt like I was able to endure and, and, you know, to keep going and, you know, finally, finally reached the destination. So, yeah. You wore Hocus, right? Your old sponsor, but Hey, shoe companies, she can have a shoe sponsor too. So you guys, you guys need to get on this. Well, I'm, I'm now represent Lululemon. So I, um, fortunately I have the flexibility to wear what shoes work the best for me for the distance and the terrain. So, and going these really long ultra distance, I need to wear the most comfortable, most cushioned shoes, you know, that are going to keep me healthy. So and um, I'm, you know, really, really fortunate and grateful for Lululemon, you know, supporting me, you know, being able to wear what works for me. And um, but yeah, obviously, I had a lot of gear changes as well. And and um, when you're going for 48 hours, I mean, we had sunshine and heat, humidity and rain and cold at night and um, so yeah, I had to do go through a lot of shoe and gear changes, shoe changes, um, sock changes, um, all that. I mean, you experience a lot of things when the further you go. So yeah, so in the, in the failed attempts, how many hours did you make it? Yeah, they they didn't last very long, and um, so I I think they were around a hundred k for well, uh, actually that's wrong. I think the first race I dropped out around maybe about a hundred k, and then and um, the second time like just maybe a hundred and ten miles. Um, but yeah, I mean I was just having so much going at those slower paces. I mean you're running more on your heels, you're not putting a lot of force into the shoes. And I was just having a whole lot of foot pain and hip pain, back pain, and um, just not very comfortable for me wearing wearing carbon plated shoes. So I intentionally did not wear carbon plated shoes for this. Um, I mean, you need your you need your feet to be able to flex because um, going at those slower paces and when you get really really fatigued, um, you don't want to be working any harder than you have to. And so being in stiff shoes is really not as comfortable. Um, I prefer to be in more flexible shoes and, you know, soft cushioned shoes going those long distances. You never made it half the, you know, beyond halfway essentially. So was there any concern going in? Like maybe I'm just not made for 48 hours. Like you can be someone, I mean, I'm going <laughs> to, Someone can be good at the 10K, and they're not good at the marathon. Someone can get at the marathon, they're not good at the 50 mile. But from 24 <laughs> hours to 48 hours, are, are there people in the ultra world who are like, no, I, I can't run for two straight days without sleeping, really? I mean, like, it, it, to me, it seems once you go beyond a day, I think a lot of us can imagine, okay, you don't sleep for a day, you're exerting yourself, okay. But like a second day, that to me seems like a completely different realm. It, like, was there doubt in your mind that, hey, maybe I'm just not made for the 48 hours? No, I I really felt like I'm made for it, that I'm born born to do it. And um, I mean, I guess you could say I'm a slow learner. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, sometimes it takes a couple of tries to get it right. And I um, even, you know, for 100 miles, I didn't nail it the first couple of attempts at 100 miles. And 
I just had to keep trying. And I think that goes to show, you know, just to have perseverance and to not give up on your dreams. Um, I think that doing the multi-day races is more strategic. And um, I actually got a book. Uh, I'm trying to think if I have it over here on the table. Um, I got a book um, about multi-day racing from a friend and it helped me to change my mindset for the race, knowing that I needed to be more strategic than I had been for the shorter distances. Um, and, and like you said, I mean, you're having to deal with sleep deprivation. You're having to deal with extreme levels of pain and fatigue and um, gear changes, nutrition. Um, I mean, there's a lot more variables that you have to get dialed into. And so um, I started sleeping on day one. I started taking power naps on day one for this race. And I think that was really the game changer that it felt like it just kept recharging my brain like it's a battery. And that is really what helped me to be strong on day two that, um, you know, just getting those little bits of sleep starting on day one. Um, and I, I had a lot of nutrition issues on day one. Um, it almost felt like I had food poisoning. And um, I kind of had to get it out of my system and, and figure out a nutrition alternative on day one. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up, I actually took the Morton um, drink and um, just went to plain water. And I was finally able to get my energy up. Um, and then starting into day two, nutritionally, I was eating Teff. Um, which is what I normally have for breakfast. And I felt really good with that. And so, um, so yeah, I, I had a lot of struggles with my nutrition on day one, but going into day two, um, getting my nutrition right, um, I had changed my shoes and socks. And, um, and yeah, we had some rainstorms that I had to deal with. I mean, there was just so many challenges along the way. And um, being an ultra runner, that's what we do. We persevere, we push through challenges. And so, um, you know, I just knew I had to roll with the punches and um, keep going. I, I felt like, you know, every challenge that came my way that I had to just work with my body and just, you know, keep going. And, um, but yes, for, I felt like sleep was really the biggest difference. And that's what gave me the strength to, um, sustain it and run really, really strong on day two. Logistically, you said you took naps. I, I read how long they were, but I can't remember. Can you tell us the logistics? How long were the naps early on? I think you took one longer nap, like logistically sort of talk us through. Yeah. And then also like how often are you yeah. stopping to like eat, use the restroom and did that change from day one to day two? Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like day one was really, really challenging. Um, like I mentioned, I, I kind of felt like I had food poisoning and things just were not settling well for me. Um, but but yeah, I, I kind of had to work through those challenges um, with my nutrition and, um, you know, things things are coming out every which way. It was really pretty ugly. Um, but, but yeah, in terms of the naps, I think they said my longest break was like 41 minutes. And um, probably for that break, I was probably eating. And um, I think my longest nap was maybe about 25 minutes. Um, and maybe my shortest nap was about six to eight minutes. Um, and I think they said I had like 14 stops and um, maybe like four hours and six minutes of stop time. 
Um, so I would say in total for sleep, I had probably about 90 minutes to two hours for the two days, which is actually probably more sleep than most multi-day runners get for that distance. Um, but I, I, you know, I just really worked with my body. I didn't really plan for when I was going to have the, the rest breaks and the sleep breaks. Um, I just laid down whenever I felt like my brain kind of needed to be recharged. And, um, and I even had some walk breaks in there too. Um, I, I joked that I, I, there were times where I felt like a boiling kettle and I either needed to like walk or lay down to kind of get myself to kind of simmer down. And so, um, so yeah, I just kind of worked with my body when I felt like I needed that. And then, um, and then I would get back out there and I, I mean, I'm just, you know, the, the little engine that could, like, I just felt like I could get back into my rhythm and, and, you know, turn over pretty well. And, um, I mean, they said, they said, you know, my, my actual moving pace was really, really good. Um, and I mean, when you're going these really long distances, um, you go through extreme levels of pain and fatigue. And I, I've said it kind of feels like your body goes into a, like a rigor mortis type state where you're like really, really rigid. And I mean, it's so hard to push through that. I mean, I, you know, unless you've experienced it, it's really hard to describe what that feels like. Um, but yeah, I'm pushing through this extreme level of pain and fatigue and, um, just keep going. I just get, kept going. So you sound almost like a bystander. You said like, they said my running pace was really good. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so it sounds like when you started this thing, what were your goals? You didn't have it all mapped out. Like I run this pace, this, I'm thinking, oh, you'd have these intermediate goals. You know, I can run, I don't know, like nine <laughs> minute per mile at the beginning, like how do you even know, like, like what pace are you running the first hour versus hour 47? Yeah, it's, it's pretty drastically different. Um, yeah, I, I kind of approached the first 24 hours and um, as being like a more relaxed um, 24 hour pace, which I equated that to about 65% of max heart rate which is like an easy run pace. And, and so I think I was running like, you know, eight minute to 8.30 per mile pace, which, you know, is like an easy, comfortable pace for me. Um, so yeah, I was really focused on, you know, just being this really chill pace on day one. But at some point, I mean, you become sleep deprived and fatigued and your energy's depleted. And it's kind of like you're just trying to move at whatever pace you can sustain. So I didn't know what that pace was going to be or what it was going to feel like on day two. But I, in my mind, I was telling myself to just push as hard as I can. Um, and so I think it ended up, I was running between maybe like 10 minute, 1030 pace, like towards the end of the race. Um, and yeah, and then you incorporate, you know, four plus hours of stop time. And so, yeah, it ends up being, I think my moving pace was like nine, I don't even know, 945 per mile or something like that. My moving pace for, um, you know, the time I was moving. And then I had four hours and six minutes of stop time. So, I mean, it's amazing. Well, how much <laughs> time to go did you break the old record? 
I think I just I had just under three hours left in the race, so I was able to put another 15 miles on the record. Um, and yeah, everybody's been breaking it down. I think they said I improved the record by like five percent or something like that. I don't even know like what that means, but um, but yeah, there there were people like graphing graphing it and you know compared to other 48 hour performances because they were trying to predict what i was going to do and um, most people start to kind of nosedive the last like six hours and i was like a straight line all the way to the finish um, and i i really think it was sleep i think like just getting that little bit of sleep to kind of recharge my brain like gave me the mental strength to continue to push um, towards the end and um and yeah i mean maybe even being a woman i i you know i did a post today talking about you know how women are made to endure um because of our maternal instinct um and so you know whether it's estrogen or maternal instinct you know we we have the ability to endure a lot of extreme levels of pain and fatigue um, and so, yeah, I mean, I was kind of thinking about all these things, you know, during the race, thinking, you know, just keep pushing, you know, I, I'm, you know, this is, I got to see this through, you know, I got to find out what's possible. And so, yeah, I was just really uh, motivated and inspired. And, you know, I give credit to my husband, Connor, and all the support on the side. I mean, everybody was cheering me on. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I had amazing support there. And, you know, it's super exciting. Who's counting the laps? You know, so that, that seems like a difficult thing to keep track of because there's lots of people running. Yeah, yeah, it's it's electronic timing. So, um, you know, it's really cool because they um, the guy that was doing the timekeeping was actually the third best 48 hour runner all time. Um, so Martin, Martin Fryer, he's from Australia. So he was doing the timekeeping and I mean, it was electronic timing. So we had a board that we could see our splits and what lap we're on. And, um, yeah, I mean, once I got to over a thousand laps, I was, you know, super excited. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, but yeah, I mean, it, every time I hit like a different milestone, I mean, that really kept me motivated, inspired, um, you know, reaching 200 miles, reaching 240 miles and um, reaching the world record. I mean, every time I reached a new milestone, I just felt like super inspired and, and just kept going, you know, see how far I can go. And, um, so yeah, Martin, Martin was there and, um, I ended up surpassing Martin and um, like the last couple laps and so and um, so yeah i ended up becoming the third uh fastest human ever uh by the end so i think i missed the second best man by like 110 meters oh wow <laughs> you you ran more than Yano chorus the male record holder you ran further than he did in day two so i did i did yeah that was that was wild to think about and um, yeah, I just maintained it really well on day two. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard because you want like I, you know, was really strategic with my sleep because I felt like it could help me. But at the same time, I couldn't sleep too long because like I didn't want to like lose any time and um, more time than I had to. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I was still pretty sleep deprived by the end. But at the same time, I think that the little bits of sleep that I got were 
um, super helpful, you know, maintaining the pace to the end. So I'll have to share this podcast with my wife. She's always saying that I'm <laughs> weaker than her, not as smart. So I mean, and, and I don't sleep enough. I get a man cold. She makes fun of me. Sounds like, you know, you're saying women are tougher. I'm not going to argue with that. She's very strategic. And then she's like, well, then you don't sleep enough. So I think you're, maybe you're showing a new way to run this. She should you know. try ultra running. <laughs> Who knows? She's done a couple of marathons. Hey, you started late in this. Started yeah. late at this. Yeah. Well, I, I guess let's, let's turn there. A lot of people run. Not everyone's an ultra runner. Sort of how did you get into this? And when did you know you're gonna be really good at it? Yeah, um, well, I, I felt like I competed for a long time at the marathon and the shorter distances and everybody was like kind of encouraging me to try ultra running. And, uh, you know, I, I, I ran a lot of marathons and um, like 10 years ago, I was running, you know, back to back marathons. And um, I remember I was at the New York City Marathon and David Monty, the elite coordinator, and um, I had ran the Pan American Games Marathon and then ran New York City and I ran really well at both of them. And um, he started planning the siege for me to try ultra running. And um, so, yeah, I ended up running my first ultra at Two Oceans back in 2013. And um, my first couple ultras didn't go so well. And um, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to commit to it, but I figured well, I'm just going to give it another shot. And so 2015 is when I recommitted myself and I went back to training more like a marathoner and, you know, just straight up marathon training going into 2015. And that's when things started to happen. And I ended up running my first 100K and it went really, really well. And I qualified for both the 50K and the 100K World Championships. And then I went into those world championships and um, won both of the world championships in 2015. Um, and yeah, then I ran the 50 mile world best that fall as well. So, um, yeah, I felt, I felt like, you know, I found my calling in life that, you know, I, I'm really grateful that I gave ultra running another chance because I was at the point where I, I was about to retire and because I worked full time in research at that time. And um, I felt like I had achieved everything I wanted to in the marathon and the shorter distances. And I felt like I had nothing more to do there. And, um, you know, and so, so for me, it just, you know, it opened up a whole new world, a whole new chapter uh, in my life and in my running career. And um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you don't you don't know until you try. And so, you know, I feel very blessed that, you know, I gave ultra running a shot and that I've continued to go further and cross over different distances, different terrains. And um, I mean, it's what what a heck of a journey here the past eight years. Are you getting better? <laughs> yeah, so I, I become a master's runner and last year I turned 40 and and yeah, it's it's crazy. I think I'm getting stronger and faster and I would say the biggest difference is right here. I'm I'm becoming wiser. And and so yeah, I mean I've made a lot of mistakes. I've had a lot of failures as an ultra runner. I've dropped out of races, I've had a lot of injuries. 
Um, and yeah, I feel like I've really, you know, turned a new page here since I've become a master's runner that I'm really trying to be a lot smarter with my training and my nutrition and my sleep. Um, and yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, it's really becoming a master's runner has really re-inspired me, reinvigorated my, my running career. And I, I feel great right now. And I'm not being so, you know, tough on myself with my training. I don't have to be a, you know, workout champ all the time that I can be smarter and kind of, you know, give credit to my husband for helping me pull back the reins. And so, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm being a lot smarter and, and that's really what it comes down to. I'm just, you know, being smarter. Yeah. You and your husband have a coaching website, uh, runcamille.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. And there's a quote on there from Rob, uh, De Castillo. Exactly. Excuse me. Um, yeah, De Castillo. And, um, it says train smarter, not harder. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, even like more traditional running, like up to the marathon, people like, oh, we have this mindset that we're good because we work harder than everybody else or whatever. There's no bonus points for working hard or trying harder. You want to be smart about it. So clearly what you guys are doing is working. Yeah. And and what's what's really cool is um, Rob was at the start of the Street Tramoy 48 hour race. And so we, we could, we could share a pic of us together at the start, but I mean, he was there, he was there and I got my pic with him. I could not believe it. It was so amazing. Um, and yeah, I told him, I told him I had this quote on our coaching website. And so it was like surreal to like meet him in real life and feel like, you know, he epitomized, you know, what I, what I do as an athlete, I try to train smarter, not harder. So, um, that was super, super cool. In, in terms of your training, it sounds like you do a, a lot less than some other ultra runners or like you do a long run every couple of weeks. I, I don't know. Cause in my mind, I'm like, I wouldn't want to be an ultra runner cause I have to go out and run like eight hours on the weekend, <laughs> but you're not doing that. Can you kind of frame your training sort of big picture for everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think I train more like a marathoner. Um, I, I guess I would say that I don't do quite as much quality and I don't do as many long runs as I used to. Um, but I, I train, um, I do about 12 to 13 runs a week and most of my runs are between 90 minutes to two hours. Um, and then I do speed work twice a week, uh, strides and drills twice a week. And then in terms of long runs, um, I've really de-emphasized long runs the past couple of years. And even going back to being a marathoner, um, probably like now I get, I do a long run of about 18 to 22 miles, um, once or twice a month. But if I, if I'm doing a lot of ultras, like I just ran a hundred miles in February and came back for 48 hours in March, I didn't do any long runs between those. I had a short you know, turnaround time between those. So I think my longest run was like two hours. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not doing like a lot of crazy long runs or back-to-back long runs. And I mean, I, I feel like a lot of ultra runners have the mindset that they have to do more. And even a lot of marathoners stepping up to ultra runners, they think they have to do more. They think they have to do longer long runs, more long runs. And I, I've definitely made those mistakes at the beginning of my career. Um, when I first got into the sport in 2013, I was trying to extend my long run. 
and I was feeling flat. I felt flat doing, you know, 30 mile training runs. Um, and I just didn't feel like there was any benefit to doing that. So it was when I went back to more of a quality based marathon training approach that things started to really change for me. And I started to get my spring back in my legs. And I think that applies to even, you know, going longer, doing 100 miles, doing 24 hours, 48 hours. I still have to tap into my leg speed and my turnover. Um, even when I was running the 48-hour world record, I did, I did pickups during that race because I was trying to change my muscle usage because your hip flexors get really tight. I mean, you're in that same repetitive uh, turnover, you know, running on a track, you know, for over a thousand laps. I mean, that's that same turnover. So I was doing hard pickups during the race to change my muscle usage. And I mean, I, I have to do speed work to be able to do that. So, yeah, I think it still is very critical for all trainers. Clearly, no one can argue with your success. So <laughs> physiologically, it must work. But there's got to be a huge mental component, right? Like, I don't know how you, is there a way you can train that? Like, I think a lot of people could go out and run 13 runs a week, get their body to do that. But there's no way mentally they could hold up or like, you know, you've never run more than 24 hours. And you got to go for 48. Somehow you did it. You crushed the record. Like on the mental side, how do you handle it? How do you prepare? Yeah, I, I feel like I'm just propelled by joy. Um, I love to run. I, I feel like I'm like wired. I, I've joked I'm like that mouse that gets on the wheel that likes to run like all day. I mean, if you had like 10 mice and there's always that one mice that just loves to run and sign so that that one mice. Uh, so yeah, I get out there. And for me, it's about it's about staying motivated, staying inspired. Um, and I know that I'm going to have challenges. I it's it's basically not possible to have a perfect race and ultra running that you're going to have challenges and you have to accept that as part of the race. And so for me, it's kind of fun because you, I have a science background and I'm used to troubleshooting and problem solving and ultra running gives me a chance to like use my brain and to kind of be that nerd, that science nerd and problem solving, you know, nutrition problems, you know, my feet, the weather. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like it's, it's really fun, uh, you know, just encountering all these challenges and how am I going to solve them? And, you know, even when I was going through all these nutrition issues, you, you know, I had my husband on the side. And so, you know, two brains are better than one. And he was able to help me kind of reframe mentally that, okay, well, you know, don't think about the 48-hour race. Think about just trying to qualify for the U.S. 24-hour team. So I had these intermediate goals that I wanted to achieve. And, and so, you know, just having him tell me that, you know, to help me reframe, okay, I don't have to think about 48 hours. I can think about trying to get to 130 miles, 140 miles, and just, you know, chip away at those, those intermediary goals that I had. Um, and so, yeah, I think it really helps to have great crew support on the side that, you know, can help you work through those challenges. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, really credit him that, you know, I had a great team around me and that helped me work through, you know, the mental side that it wasn't just me. I, you know, had this whole team behind me as well. Yeah, I'm sure that helps. But <laughs> a lot of people probably have good teams. You're giving them a lot of credit, but you do seem like a very upbeat person. 
Like I, I sense joy. I haven't talked to you in so long. I'm like, you're, you're pleasant to talk to. I, I love your attitude. Thank you. So I guess I think I saw Western States. Is that your next race? What's next? What's coming up the rest of the season? What's going to motivate you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's super fun for me. I mean, I, I think that's another huge part of having career longevity is that, you know, I didn't limit myself to one distance or one type of terrain that I see myself as a diverse athlete. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, getting into ultra running has opened me up to this whole other world of, you know, road ultras, track ultras, trail running. Um, and I mean, I see my future as being more like mountain races, you know, trying to trying to master, you know, Western States, Leadville, UTMB. Um, and so that really excites me, you know, like, what can I do with my with my mental strength, with my legs, you know, what can I, how can I, you know, take this ability that I have and channel it in other ways. Um, and so, yeah, it's super cool that um, I'm going to be taking on Western States here again in June and um, Leadville in August. So, um, you know, those are, those are super competitive races, you know, have really strong course records and yeah, I just want to see what I can do there. Someone who knows nothing about ultra running, you're you're better at the roads and the track, right? Than the trails. Is that a fair assessment? You've done better well, so far. You know, I I think it's just a matter of you know where I focus my attention to. That you know, I think of it as like learning how to ride a bike. You know, that the more you practice something, the better you're going to get at it. And so I, you know, intentionally had to focus more on the road stuff because that's what my natural background is. But, you know, I've had, I've had quite a bit of success on the trails as well. I just haven't done as much of it. Um, and so, yeah, for me, I'm stubborn. I want to get something right. You know, I, however many times it takes to get something right, I'm going to keep trying, kind of like I did with the 48-hour race. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like I just have to keep showing up, you know, kind of like uh, Des Linden with Boston. You know, it took her eight times to win the race. Uh, so I need to keep showing up and, you know, keep trying to master the trails. And um, I believe I can win. I absolutely believe I can win. I'm, you know, keep getting better at it, keep working my way to the top. Um, and, yeah, I'm just going to keep trying. Well. Jonathan Gall says we're not allowed to root people. That's false. We can root for you because you've been with Let's Run from the beginning. Yeah. And 20, 23 like, years. Well, I felt, old. I was thinking 20 in my head. I'm feeling old, even older. Um, but yeah, I think we did this like exploration of ultra running. You know, Hoka sponsored it a few years ago. And at the time, I think we said like the ultimate would be to win Comrades, Western States. And UTMB, maybe. Yeah, and the then, triple crown. Uh, then we said, what's the greatest record? And somebody said, oh, Koros' 24-hour record, or maybe his 48-hour, I can't remember. Yeah. And you've got uh, two of those, essentially. Cause, and then when you broke, I think, even the 48-hour, there's this guy, Steel Town Runner. He's on Let's Run. He sort of informs us of everything we don't know about ultra running. He'll text us. He's like, you guys missed this or whatever. But like for your, for your recent records, he's like, these are, she's really like just crushing it. So if you can have Western States right on top of this, oh yes. I think, Yeah. I mean, you're already sure, a legend, but I, I think, yeah, like that would be really cool. Yeah, definitely. I've got my sights set on Western States and UTMB and uh, 
I mean, winning comrades is hard enough. I mean, that's, you know, kind of the pinnacle of, you know, ultra running. Um, and so, yeah, the fact that I won comrades, it, you know, it kind of sets me up for that possibility. And I believe I can do it. And I, I'm stubborn enough that, you know, I'll try as many times as it takes, you know, hopefully, hopefully I can keep my leg speed going and, you know, channel that on the trails next. So, um, yeah, I've got, I've got a great team around me and, you know, I got to give a shout out for my nutrition, or my, uh, my watch sponsor Coros as well, because, um, you know, they've been with me for a long time and, um, they're keeping me on track with my nutrition and, you know, being able to, to historically, you know, to capture, you know, all these different records I've set and, and then, you know, translating it to trials. So, um, so yeah, it's really, really amazing. I've got a great support team around me and I, I really, you know, I'm grateful for that. Wait, how does a watch help you with nutrition? <laughs> it, it, they, they have a nutrition timer on there. And that was actually one of the first things that I recommended that they add to the watch. I said, hey, you know, can we add a nutrition timer? Um, and I mean, that was super helpful to keep me on track later in the 48 hour race. I mean, it would it would beep every 30 minutes to to let me know that I needed to you know, to, to take a sip of my drink and, and eat some of my teff and, um, yeah, a huge, huge difference maker. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, I, I couldn't think straight at the end of a marathon. I can't imagine, you know, 46 hours into a race <laughs> and Coros, you know, they've advertised and let's run in the past. Yeah. It seems like they're the watch for like, I mean, Perform. It's designed for performance. They had the lightest GPS watch. They incorporated this thing in there. I mean, they're not paying me to say this. Like, I always thought, like, if I was gonna go out and buy a watch, that's the watch I would buy. They have a very affordable watch. Like, I remember, like the Kipchoge. The um, they now have a Molly Seidel version. It's like a two hundred bucks. Like, you know, you don't have to break the bank. So. Yeah, that that one's it's super. I like that watch as well, and. Yeah, it, I think it. I think it's it's really lightweight. Like I was like, holy cow, it's an amazing watch. But yeah, I, I used the Apex Pro too for the forty eight hour world record, and um, yeah, I mean it was super cool to to be able to see the data afterwards. And I think I consumed like nineteen thousand calories or something like that. <laughs> it's crazy. That's nuts. Yeah, yeah. As a, I was about to say because. I'll, I'll be on like a GPS watch site, kind of looking all the stuff. And I'm like, it's got all these features. And I'm like, I'm running like three miles around the, around the neighborhood. I'm like, I, I can settle for the lesser version, but you know, <laughs> you, ultra people, you need every bell and whistle and the altitude stuff. And the battery uh, life. Yeah. yeah. Oh, battery life. I didn't even thought about that. Yeah. Trying, trying to have a watch that, that keeps going. The, the energizer Benny of watches. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's a, it's a good fit for you. And well, thank you for doing this. Um, and congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's I've, I've it's enjoyed this. Cool. I don't think I'll ever do an ultra. Maybe my, my brother used to joke he would have been a great ultra runner, but I think it's too late for him. But I don't know. He's only eight years older than you. He can, <laughs> you know, at masters ultra running. Clearly, you're the best in the world. and You're a master. So there's some pretty good men. Um, maybe there's like an over 50 division he can get into soon. Soon. He's not totally, quite there yet. But. Totally. Well, I, you know, it started on Let's Run where, where dreams come true. And, um, 
where your dreams become reality. I think you guys sent me a shirt one time and I don't know what's happened to it, but uh, yeah, it may be, it may be stuck out in a garage in a plastic bag. <laughs> but I, yeah, I think you guys sent me a let's run shirt at one point and um, yeah. You know, I, I remember I remember talking on the, the message boards at one time with Jack Daniels. Do you remember that? You mean just in general? He used to be on there, but Yeah, he Jay was it Jay Tupper? Yeah, Jay Tupper. Were you, you Jaguar one or I I'm Jaguar one. Yeah. And at one time I was Jaguar, like like originally I was Jaguar and then somebody registered it. So yeah, that's how I became Jaguar one. No, it's funny because even now I was looking, I was like, she's Jaguar one. And then I looked and I could see these. I'm like, oh, wow. Like now we're on top of that stuff. Like we prevent people from registering names, but you've been there from the beginning. And I'm like, wait, I think someone stole her name because I could see that it was registered. So uh, our yeah. apologies. I'm if original. we helped inspire you in any way. Oh, my gosh. that Thank you. Like, of I'm course. glad we could provide, you know, you've been at Let's Run from the beginning, right? There's a lot of crap yeah. on there, but but it's a place for runners to hang out. There's a lot of crap in the world. Like if I could make a perfect community, I would, and but I can't. So it was, it was really cool at first. Let's run was cool at first. I mean, like we were having conversations with, I think maybe even Lauren Fleshman and Jack Daniels. And I mean, like people used to be known, I mean, on there, you know, it wasn't just hiding behind a username. It was like, you they had like real people on there having conversations. So I don't I don't remember at what point like it kind of turned and became more trolls and that sort of thing. But the original Let's Run was really cool. All right. Well, I think some <laughs> of that's still there, but you're right. The, the top pros don't use their name. I think a lot of them are still on there, but they're not they're not posting under most of them. And you'll see Nick Willis from time to time. But Nick Willis has been there from the from the beginning, too. So, yeah. He was a high school kid, I remember, and I probably met him in like 2001 or something. <laughs> yep. All right, maybe we'll have a Q&A with you on the forums. We'll, we'll bring back the old times. I, I think, I remember I used to be into like the, the threads about, because I had a lot of injuries in college, and so I was trying to find information about stress fractures and that sort of thing. So to be able to have like real conversations with people, like, People really cared. People were actually giving, you know, thoughts and insight on training and, and all that. So I remember Let's Run when it was like super, super helpful. And now it's a little bit harder to like dig through all that stuff. But um, I mean, sometimes I guess you get some good gems. But um, yeah, I, I don't really I don't follow it as much anymore. So I don't know. I also get emails from people like I wrote a you're talking about being college and I wrote an article like why I sucked in college and I wrote this thing. Oh yeah. I know, I probably that. 13, 14 years ago. Yeah. And I, I got an email like a couple years ago and they're like, Oh, the, Oh, your article like saved my running career. And I'm like, what? Yeah. You still read that thing? We need to highlight <laughs> some of the old stuff better, but you'll still see kids, you know, they search for stuff. That's how they discover let's run. They're like Achilles tendon injured the land on the forums. The thread might be recent, it might be old, they'll sort of find some information and then they'll go from there. So Yeah. Yeah, twenty three years, kinda of crazy. <laughs> I know. I think I was eighteen when I first visited, so yeah, it was it was cool back then. I liked it. And you even had Diestat. So Diestat was I don't even remember when Diestat um 
I think I stat like changed maybe at some point, like 2006 or 2008 or so. And then all those people, all those kids came to Let's Run. So, Oh yeah. Dice got, got rid of their forms at one point. I mean, forums are hard to begin with, but with high school yeah. kids, it's even harder. Like, <laughs> um, and also at the beginning, also like, like now you have a you have a training site, right? Like, doctors have training sites, so there's so much more. There, there's more. I still think there's really good training information on Let's Run, but it used to be sort of like when it first started, like every podiatrist didn't have a training site about injuries or information about injuries. Where like there weren't all these coaching sites, it was sort of like. Almost by default, you were you were forced to go to Let's Run. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, like, there's so much information on the internet. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I still love Let's Run and, and the information on it, but it's it's not like it's you're not. There's other places you can go to, but it's funny. There aren't <laughs> as many running. There aren't as many forums like Reddit. You know, people are on Twitter. Yeah, social media. I still media. love forums. So. Yeah. Maybe, I, but I'm, maybe that shows I'm old. <laughs> yeah, there's there's an abundance of information, but yeah, but before social media and back in the day, I mean, we we visited Let's Run and you know could have conversations with Jack Daniels, and it was it was a different world. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a part of it. Thank you yeah. for joining us. That's cool. We'll be you know following you and all your uh, hopefully more accolades to come this year. And yeah, it's gonna be fun. I'm excited to I'm excited to bring it to the trials and yeah, take on the Western States and Leadville this summer and um yeah, and then I, I qualified for the twenty four hour world championship at the end of the year. So um I think I think you forgot to mention I I've I won the twenty four hour world championship as well. So I'm the defending world champ for that. So I gotta go back and defend my title. Oh yeah, I didn't actually. I was like, I saw fifty k, hundred k. I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's any more. And then twenty four like, hours. Yep. Yeah. I'm glad you you found some errors in my intro. <laughs> well, it's it's been so long. I I had to remember, and because yeah, we haven't had the twenty four hour world championship since pre pandemic. So yeah, it's been since twenty nineteen. So I have to. It's been a while. I definitely have to go back for that one. So. Where's that one gonna be? Um, it's going to be in Taiwan. Oh, wow. Yeah. December in Taiwan. So I think it's going to be pretty hot and humid. That's the other thing with all this ultra stuff. You guys never do it. And like, it's never like Mount Sac or Stanford. Yeah. So, even your 48 hours, it just pours rain. It was awful. Yeah. But there were, there were some great moments too. So, uh, yeah, you just kind of have to work with the weather and whatever, you know, Mother Nature throws at you. <laughs> uh, well, you're definitely tougher than me. You know, I'll still argue that I'm tougher <laughs> than my wife, but you're definitely tougher than me. So, <laughs> All right, cool. thank you. Yeah, thanks, Walden. Have a good good rest of the day. And yeah, maybe maybe you'll try ultra running one day or even, even a 50K. <laughs> 50K. I was telling people I want to run the Boston Marathon and I have to qualify. Uh, there you go. I'm, I used to live in Fort Worth. Maybe I'll do the Cowtown. They have a marathon oh, and yeah. a 50K. There I can do the 50K, qualify for Boston on the way, and that'll be it. Do Boston, and then I'll be done. I'll be done with running. There you go. The the finale. <laughs> yep. We're joined by a very special guest. 
Camille here, and she's just told me, started coming to Let'sRun.com at the very beginning, fall of 2020. She's a supporters <laughs> club member, and she's arguably the greatest woman's ultra marathoner ever. 